Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show fitness trainer and the man known as the king of chemo, Ian Ward. Now, Ian was only 31 when he discovered he had terminal brain cancer, and rather than curl up into a ball, he decided to use this diagnosis as purpose and has since done numerous endurance events to raise money for charity. Now, one side note before we get into the conversation, the way he generates funds is twofold. Firstly, of course, simple donations, but secondly, simply following him on social media. As I'm sure you're aware, these platforms allow money to be generated, and he sends all the funds back into the charities he supports. So we discuss a host of topics, from his early dream of becoming a firefighter, his journey through nursing, finding strength and conditioning, the incredible support from the NHS when it comes to his treatment, community between England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales, some of the incredible events he's got coming up and so much more. Now before we get to this amazing conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth, of over 800 episodes. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Ian Ward. Enjoy. Do you pronounce it, Ian? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems to be only the Americans that think that my, like, the I is not a capital letter and therefore must be a lowercase L. So they call me Lane. And it's like, that's, that's, <laughs> it's not anyone's name as far as I know. Well, I was more worried about being like, Ian. Ian, Nah, it's the Scottish spelling, but like I have zero Scottish heritage. It's amazing that um, it doesn't, it makes perfect sense that I have brain cancer, but it's amazing that I'm not cross-eyed because uh, my heritage is unbelievably like, it's not even just like 100% Ireland. It's even like 100% Ireland with like 98% Munster, which is a third of the, or a quarter of the, the country. So it's like, how am I not more inbred? So we're all right. We'll just go ahead and, and move on from this. I think this is a great conversation already. One of the things that I've always totally believed and felt ever since I was a little boy is you have England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales. And yes, of course, there's Northern Ireland and all that stuff. But to me, we're two tiny rocks, tiny little rocks in, in the Atlantic. And it blows me away when there's like an anti-Scottish, anti-English, anti-Irish sentiment. What, what was your perspective growing up? Was there that kind of division or did you see yourself also as part of you know, this 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 four country collection that at times has shitty leadership and has done some horrible things to other countries, but we're still people that live right next to each other. I think it was always the case that like uh you kind of you'd watch films and you'd hear about history and you go, Ah the Brits, the Brits, oh they did all this horrible shit to us, uh and then if ever you sort of you meet them, it's just like, Oh, you're you're grand. 
<laughs> you're one of us. And it's the same thing. Like you go over and um, I'll give you a, a perfect example of this. So I was playing uh, an online video game and I come across a guy who had said something like uh, uh, Optera 94, some, some sort of a username like that. And Irish people, uh, like, I live in London. I, like, love Londoners. London's great. I'd like, you know, uh, obviously when it comes to, you know, sports, it'll be like, ah, yeah, fuck England. <laughs> but, like, in reality, not at all. But that doesn't stop that we're still, even though it is supporting terrorism, we still love saying up the rod just because it's more of a cultural thing. But if you start talking to Irish people, like, hold on, do you actually support the IRA? And it's like, no. Like, at the turn of the century, yes, because it was a completely different um uh political uh landscape political scenario and then the more you get like later into the cent <clears throat> later into the century there, like there's certainly still points like during the 60s you would certainly support the um uh the ira because it was a, a fight back against like um uh like sort of uh the uh the brits well not the brits i suppose it was well it still is the brits the northern ireland um police force uh, the protestant police force they didn't allow catholics to become the uh, the police force breaking into uh catholic homes and it, uh, like this is kind of a a weird irony sort of uh thing but they kept breaking into irish people's homes because they thought that they were hiding guns and they weren't but then all of the oppression meant that they were like, we're fucking sick of this. So then I actually went and got guns because they're like, what else are we going to do? So it's sort of like uh, the fear um, that the British people had, uh, well, the sort of the, uh, the Protestants had, they kind of created the actual threat themselves because they were afraid of a threat. So it's sort of like almost a preliminary strike where it's like, yeah, it's not really a good idea because all you're doing by bombing another country is you're creating more enemies. It's like, that's not how you solve problems. And it was the same sort of context, but in a different, uh, sorry, it's the same sort of thing, but in a different context. So, um, yeah. I oh, sorry to go back to the video game thing. Your man had a, uh, like some sort of an IRA reference to him. And I decided I'll put on a British accent and I'd start talking to him. <laughs> like, Oh, what, what you got for them? What's all this? And, um, I played him on just to sort of see, like, you know, I wonder what, like, what's this guy actually like? Because, you know, we we like to say, like, up the rank, kind of make the fun, make fun of our English friends and whatnot. Um, but, like, to have it as a username, that's sort of, like, a step above. And I kept talking to him, pretending I was, uh, pretending I was English. And then eventually I was like, all right, and uh, who's, uh, who's the first president of Ireland then? Who's the current president of Ireland? And then uh, he was like, oh, we don't have a president in Ireland yet. Those the English folks like, yes, you do. You have a Taoiseach and you have a president. They're two separate political entities. What's president called? And your man just went like blank. Like he clearly knew fucking nothing about the situation. And it was like, um, I start, he, oh, that's what it was. It was, uh, he had a thing called Michael Collins Legend, which is like the, uh, one of the sort of the, uh, the head of the IRA uh, back when it was like, you know, the turn of the century. And uh, like he would be an Irish, not a folk folklore, but he would be an Irish hero because it was part of the like uh, uh, the, uh, the the fight for independence. And then so I started asking him, it was like, oh, right. Yeah. So who killed Michael Collins? And he, he's dead now. Who killed Michael? Collins? And he couldn't answer the question. It was like, well, it was actually in the Civil War. It was an other Irish person who did that, which was the breakdown of um uh kind of like how northern ireland was formed where it was like um the rebellion happened and then after the rebellion it was 
uh, the Brits said, all right, you can have this, 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 this and this, but you can't have the six counties up in the north of Ireland. And one of the reasons why sort of Michael Collins is uh, like sort of uh, like, ah, he fucked up uh, because he said yes to the peace agreement. And everyone was like, ah, he should have uh, stood firm and all this sort of thing. And it's like, well, he was a he was a military tactician tactician. Uh, he wasn't a negotiator, so it's hard to sort of be this uh, heavy on him. But uh, anyway, this guy who was on social media or who was on a, 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 an online video game, he hadn't a fucking clue. And it was I wish it was back in the days where you recording your uh, your own video games. Oh, man, I would have caught him so much because after a while I was like, actually, mate, I'm not English at all. I've been just winding you up and you know fucking nothing about Irish history. And yet you're doing all this up the rab bollocks without knowing any of the context. And then he didn't say a thing and he just quit the game. So he's obviously just so embarrassed, being like completely outed. So like you do get the odd dumbass who just doesn't fully understand the history. But I'd say most people in Ireland don't have any sort of a problem with the Brits whatsoever. And if they do, they're just ignorant. And obviously, I, I hate being uh, one of those people who's like, I'm Irish, therefore I represent the whole of the fucking island. But um, I'd like to think that uh, if there's uh, any Irish people that are listening to this, they're kind of nodding their head like, yeah, that's about right. Yeah, I mean, that's how I see it. I've had people on here, you know, from Ireland, from Belfast, from, you know, all different places. I've had people that were SAS and, and paras that were in, you know, during the uh, the unrest. And it's all these different perspectives. But you take a step back, you know, and you've got Catholics and Protestants, which are, you know, arguably the same religion, just different kind of versions of. And this bread is the body of Christ. No, this bread represents the body of Christ. Ah, fuck. That's a big difference. Let's kill each other over it. <laughs> But this is the point. And then you take a step back and you look at, you know, even you know, talk about the potato fam famine and slavery and all these these atrocities, you know, the what the British did in India. That wasn't the British people. That was a few shitbags at the top that made some horrible, horrible decisions that some probably resisted. Hands. Yeah. And some and yeah. some, you know, were were too cowardly to kind of push up against. But it's always the same thing. It's this division. And so they're like England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales. Yeah, I get it. There were borders and there are countries at one point, but we're the same people, you know, and to have, oh, yeah. you know, Protestants and Catholics in Ireland, or as, as we record this on 9-11, you know, a, planes hit our towers here in New York, and then we go over to originally Iraq, wrong country, but then finally Afghanistan. Yeah. And then, you know, a lot of the men and women that have been over there, report that over there were husbands and wives and children doing the exact same things as people are doing in the UK, in Australia, in America, and amongst them, some extremist shitbags again that are behind these attacks. So over and over and over again, people are divided deliberately, so it weakens us, and then they set us against each other, rather than being reminded, for example, the British Isles and Ireland, that we're all the fucking same people living the same kind of lives next door to each other, but we allow a few assholes to fuck it up for the rest of us. Yeah, it's a, it's a tweak in the difference of the culture. There's like, uh, when you want to break it down, um, I'm sure people would sort of be like, oh, sure, we have our own sports and we have this kind of a culture. And it's like, you say the same thing about like the difference between Dublin and Clare. Culture would be like, we'd have significant differences, but... 
that's you're kind of breaking it down to taking it away from people as a, as individuals where it's like you can always pick a side even in fucking dublin it's so easy to be like i'm a north sider i'm a north sider versus i'm a, oh, I'm a south sider and it's like you know it's it's the difference of a couple of kilometers i think belfast would be a much more sort of a um divisive in that you'd know when you're in like the catholic areas versus you'd know you're in the protestant areas i did a cycle up in um uh belfast recently enough and it is like going across several borders as you're as you're going through because you just see the murals everywhere where it's like kind of uh the orange red man the red hand of ulster marching down the street with their drums and then the other side it's like okay now you see the catholic side is just everybody in balaclavas and like kind of <laughs> shitly drawn ak-47 it's like oh yeah okay blaine we'll take our country back and that like yeah it's just the uh, it's it's very uh i'd like to think that just generally if you go out into a particular bar like you'd never be bothered that much but i don't live in belfast i like i very rarely have been there uh so i do not know how to contact so i'm not even going to try to like make um uh, comments on it i understand living in london uh from an irish man's point of view i've never experienced any kind of um oppression or negative uh connotations in the slightest not even like um like kind of that's a shitty like remark sort of thing like oh that's a really crap joke sort of thing like they have like the sort of i don't even think i ever had like a potato joke made at me really thinking about it but anyway there you go. That's what reality is in London anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, London's so diverse as well. I think people certainly in the US think of England, for example, as this, you know, Aryan nation. It's like, no, it's the most beautifully diverse, especially London itself. I mean, we have all the cultures there. And do all oh, of them God, get yeah. on with each other? No, there are pockets that, you know, again, people that kind of get dragged down a very negative path. But overall, I mean, it's it's like New York. It's like all these other eclectic places that are founded on immigration now our immigration in the uk came from you know us trying to take over the entire planet at one point but now we have indians and more africans hoovering and... than immigration <laughs> exactly a little bit more we're going to take this thank you very much but i always laugh at the new zealand story though because when they got there and they saw the maori they were like uh do you want to share this island yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> they didn't take that one over but um but someone made a really interesting point on the show a while ago now they were like you have these pigeonholes, but then you go somewhere else and all of a sudden it brings you together. And so you take, for example, I would assume people in Belfast to a point. Now, let's say you're over in, in um, you know, wherever and your football team comes on. Maybe it's you know, Ireland, the country or whatever it is. And now all of a sudden you're side by side or you're like, oh, yeah. where are you from? I'm from Belfast. Oh, I'm from Belfast. And, you you know, you may not discuss the part that you don't like each other because now you're somewhere else and you're unified by a much larger community and all of a yeah. sudden it shows you the ridiculousness of the prejudice you had in your own home yeah i think the rugby world cup would be a perfect example of that because uh, ireland is a very weird um team in the rugby world cup because we don't play as a country we play as a landmass and like you can kind of get into the argument about like well wales are separated to uh england and scotland 
But then it's like, well, are they a country? No, the UK is a country, which is Northern Ireland, Wales, England, and Scotland. And if you were to go to the Olympics, it would be Great Britain that would be represented. And so like Chris Hoy, he's Scottish, but like he has a a, a great British um, uh, gold medal. So everybody's uh, the same. But then when you look at, say, uh, a bad example, but Stuart Hogg would have been one of the excellent Scottish players. And if, you know, he had done extremely well uh, in the World Cup, the English and the Welsh, they wouldn't be, you know, best pleased with that. But then when you look at the um, Ireland, it's both Northern and uh, the Republic of Ireland. And therefore, the flag is kind of wonky looking. And that's why we have um, a, 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 it's not it's not a national anthem, but it, it's kind of like a, a landmass anthem, which is like Ireland's call. Uh, and it's just kind of odd. But at the same time, it's like nobody gives a shit about like who's from Northern Ireland as opposed to um, the Republic. The only time you'd see it would be if there's a, a home game in being played in Dublin and some of the players don't sing um, a Ron Naveen because they identify as um, Irish from uh, British descent. And it's like, fair enough. Well, speaking of that, then let's get to your timeline. That was an interesting tangent. So thank you. Um, Tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Uh, so I've got one sibling. I was born in Dublin, I think Temple Street Hospital, if you want to be really specific. Um, I was born in 1989. Uh, uh, so my parents come from, um, uh, my dad comes from a, a, a standard large Irish family. My mother comes with a, a less standard but by concept, the uh, large family from in terms of the world. Well, in some parts of the world, I'd imagine you go to India and China. Well, not China anymore, but like India, they'd be like, that is not a large family. Um, but yeah, so there's four on my mom's side and there's nine on my dad's side. And there is so many cousins within the family that uh, I have to go to the cousins that I know more so some of them who live in uh, Belfast, actually, uh, and be like, remind me again, who's wh- what's what's that cousin's name? And what's that cousin's husband's name? And what's that cousin's thing? And they're just like, da, 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 and they kind of like fill it all in. Um, and yes, my dad, uh, I could, I, I like my dad's title as a, as his jobs, because I can either say that he's a, an international businessman and has traveled so many different interesting places all over the world. Or I could say he's a butter salesman, whatever you want to take the, uh, the input. And then uh, my mom is a journalist. Uh, and then she kind of uh, went from being a journalist to uh, owning her own uh, magazine. And yeah, they still kind of, um, they're past, yeah, they're at their retirement age, but they still kind of do little bits and pieces. All right. Total tangent again. Well, I love these conversations. Butter. When I think of butter in Ireland, I think of Kerry Gold, which I know. Bingo. Would- yeah, that's where he works. So yep. talk to me, educate the people. What is the difference between Irish butter and then, for example, the butters you'd find in America? Uh, from what I can tell from be- having been in America, uh, it's I think it's all from the difference of the uh, the quality of the grass. So like Kerrygold, the fantastic marketing. They, they, they I, as far as I know, I think they're the same. The Kerrygold marketing is the same. Uh, people who work in uh, in Guinness, which are like the best marketing team that uh, are on the on the planet, 
And so they kind of had this uh, extra kind of boost above all the other Irish butters, but like they're all fairly fucking nice. Um, and it's just from the fact that the uh, the grass is nicer. The grass is better quality. Therefore, the cows eat the grass. Uh, the milk is produced as um, over higher quality and then it gets made into the uh, butter, which is noticeably um, a better taste. Because, I mean, there's definitely a different taste when I go home. You know, even anchor, anchor butter was what we used to eat in England. But, um, you know, you come over here and there are some things, obviously, that are amazing in America. But when you look at the kind of factory farming model that they use here, the milk is just different because you get a different milk from a, ca- a cow that's, you know, roaming pastures and just being milked normally versus being stuck in a massive factory shed and just being pumped constantly and being given antibiotics because they're sick all the time and all the horrible things that you think about so you know when i look at now when i buy my butter i eat kerrygold because i know you know i know where that's coming from yeah uh i that was something that was quite shocking to me i was in america um back in uh april and i had heard this like the sort of the stories of like an oh yeah the food is really bad quality and i was kind of thinking like, ah, yeah, but that's just like, you know, if you're buying the cheap shit and it's like, that's the same the world over. But um, when I was actually like going into a Walmart or, and like just general shops, uh, it was sort of like, wow, you just like everywhere you go, it's just so much harder to get food that's not garbage, that's not just shite. And then it's not much of a difference, but that small difference is quite significant where it's like, if you want to eat healthy in Ireland, and you're going into a petrol station, if you're going into a gas station, you'll be able to get a banana and an apple. And if you wanted to get something that was a bit more um, uh, sort of uh, satisfying, but you didn't want to eat something that was just like a fucking hot dog or a burger, they'd have like little sandwiches there that aren't particularly good for you, but they're not awful for you. And uh, just the options are just so limited in the United States. And the same thing with like the cost of vegetables. And I found out later that that's because the governments in both the the UK and Ireland uh, support actual vegetables being grown. And uh, in the UK, because they have um, the NHS, which is free healthcare, they also try to make the vegetables available in certain shops cheaper. And apparently the incentive is so that uh, the public can have a healthier diet, which therefore in the long run saves money in uh, the national um, healthcare. But from what I can tell, uh, Americans seem to be absolutely allergic to the idea of like, you know, free healthcare. Never, no fucking way. We're not going to a communism state fucking socialism. It's like, lads, it's it's pretty good. You don't do it all. You don't have to go hardline in and like, you know, turn into fucking Stalinist 1950s communism. You can have like, you know, free healthcare and like, you know, a cheaper education system that like, it doesn't destroy the country. It makes it a bit better. So being an EMT and a paramedic in America, one of the things that jarred me the most when I first started bringing patients to hospital was the first question that was asked really wasn't what's wrong with this person. Honestly, the most attention was let me get your social security number so we can start the billing process immediately. Yeah, And, you know, and it could be as we'll get in someone with cancer or, you know, a heart attack or whatever. And, there are people, you know, literally, the moment you walk through the door wanting all that information. And I tell people in the States, in England, and right now it's not the perfect, it's, a, it's an amazing philosophy, but it's not being well funded and supported at the moment. But 
the idea that you just get hit by a car or you find out you have cancer or whatever it is and you just focus on getting well not yeah. that the treatment that you're about to get is going to make you lose your house as well because that's kind of detrimental to survive in a cancer diagnosis when you're thinking that when you get yeah. out you're going to be completely fucking broke but the way it's presented here is socialized medicine and i had a friend who's on the show as a navy seal from poland and it took a while for him to even understand the difference because he'd been told this was socialism. And it's like, no, this is altruism. We mm. all band together. We all chip in. Most of us are doing just fine. But the idea is, again, back to religion, helping other people. When Ian has his diagnosis, when so-and-so has a baby, when you know so-and-so's grandmother needs, needs care at the end of her life, it's all right, we got you. Because one day we're probably going to need it too. But yeah. here it's like, well, if it's not affecting me, I don't want to do it. And that's the mindset that we've got to change over here is like, imagine if not only you just helped other people, but that healthcare created an environment just like you underline, rather than an environment to fail, which is what we have now. And you just have to look at a lot of Americans to see we are not the healthiest population at the moment. But also if if it was run well, like the NHS should be, just underlining what you said, imagine a healthcare system that then promoted health because you don't want to dip into that tax money. It's a win-win. Yeah. yeah. The, uh, like, in particular with, with my situation, I wouldn't be having this podcast uh, conversation with you. Even in, uh, in Ireland, you still have to pay for a lot of treatment. Uh, so it's not nearly as good as the, uh, the NHS. But like, uh, I'm not a British citizen and they supported me with... Um, uh giving me uh the equivalent to welfare and uh, i only recently came off it uh, a couple of days ago because sponsorship came in and that kind of has uh, affected things even though I, I give all the sponsorship money to uh, a charity i still need to anyway that's all tax shit um we'll sort it out another time um but the um the nhs when i got my when i got cancer they just started um helping me straight away the care that i was given was like second to none my parents uh, my parents are like they're um yeah they're wealthy they are wealthy they live in a victorian house they are they are fucking wealthy they've they've worked hard their whole lives and um so my dad uh who is like you know frugal for certain things for sensible things but when it comes to important stuff he would not be like the kind of person that would be oh that's expensive treatment you like you know i don't want to help my son with that one and he did his own digging to think like you know maybe i'll find a place that's a uh, better treatment for um uh, from a summit like you know private healthcare. and he looked into like who my surgeon was for um uh, for the nhs for brain uh, brain cancer you know like you know the one of the most uh intelligent difficult uh uh, uh careers that we have like that whenever you're saying like you know hey it's not rocket science the other alternative is hey it's not brain cancer or it's not brain surgery and my dad looked around. He was like, uh, yeah, OK, I've looked around. And yeah, your man, um, Tim Jones, he seems to be the best. So like it's still free. But like, yeah, I don't think throwing money at it is going to improve anything. And uh, the the quality of care that I got, uh, I don't know if it would be any different if I was having, like, you know, uh, uh, the fucking the brain surgery of the universe that would be over uh, living in the United States of America. But um, the fact that I also, along with the free healthcare. I also got then supported financially uh, for however I wanted to live because technically it's a t it's a terminal brain cancer uh, that I have and um, under that sort of uh, badge that title it means that I don't have to work 
And that gave me the free time that I was able to focus on um, the social media shit and the, uh, the raising money for charity stuff and the kind of the time needed for me to polish off the terrible edits that I was making when I first started doing this to like getting to the point where I'm, you know, able to uh, do them properly now. And I wouldn't been able to do that if I was, you know, if I had to work, if it was like, how else are you going to pay for it? You're able to work. So like, you know, get out there and work. And I, I just would have gotten back into a, a, a job that wasn't really that particularly fulfilling. And then, I'd be living a fairly normal life, but I'd have this sort of ominous cloud over me where it's like, you're going to fucking die sooner and you're not really doing anything of interest. Whereas with the free time that I was given because of the, uh, the, um, uh, uh, great British government, I'm now in a place where I don't think I've been as, um, satisfied or, uh, productive or even straight up happy because of um what i'm aiming for what i'm gunning for what my goals are and what um what i am achieving and what i have achieved so far so that's entirely down to um you know it's not fucking perfect no government is but um it's pretty fucking good well and this is the example people need to hear as well because i've witnessed the bad side of of you know the the welfare system over here where you have the kids living in squalor but there's a fucking 50 inch tv and an escalate on the front porch yes okay there are people that abuse the system the same way as there are people that abuse all the way up the chain to you know billionaire companies as well but the mother that just needs some help until she can get her kids into regular school she needs a day you know the the uh, daycare coverage or the person that's made unemployed and they're homeless or whatever it is and then they get back on their feet and then they're like wow that that welfare those food stamps whatever it was helped me that council housing until I was able to get out and now look at what I'm doing but we don't hear that we always hear the worst case I think this is the thing about these social programs there's always going to be abuse and there's departments that try and stop that abuse from happening but we never hear about all the fucking good that these programs do and this is a perfect example you needed the help and now you've been able to turn as we'll as we'll get into it you know the the search for that right career turned into this is what you're obviously destined to do and now millions and millions and millions of people are inspired by your journey and you're raising all this money for charity so i would say that's tax dollars well spent or pounds in this case yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'd certainly agree with you. Although I would actually go a little bit further and like, you know, to those sort of people who are taking advantage of the system and like, you know, like you said, I've got an escalator in front of big fucking telly. Um, like it's a nasty, shitty thing to do. But if you take that away from them, they're probably going to start like causing trouble to society. So it's almost better like... It's not a nice thing where it's like someone's coming over to you on like a public form of transport. Let's just say a train. Uh, you're in New York. You're in the uh, the uh, the underground subway, and it's like someone comes over. And is like, hey, buddy, I want to fucking sit there. And it's like everything in your body is telling you, tell this cunt to fuck off. <laughs> but if you want to like look at it from a sort of a um, a purely game theory thing, it's like, look, this guy is an angry prick. Let him sit in your seat, go somewhere else, because the chances that this ends up being a physical confrontation, which could go a million different ways. I mean, you don't know if this guy is like, you know, an excellent boxer and like what like or he could be carrying a shank. He could be like, you know, you don't know. He could have some sort of a fucking disease. And if he bites you, you get an infection. There's so many things that can go massively wrong. And of all those things, 
the sort of the hit to the ego and the frustration of you getting up off your chair and need to stand for a minute, that is very, very low, but people don't like doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And going back just to the NHS, so one more thing, and then we'll, we'll move forward. But my granddad was 99 years old when he got diagnosed with cancer, 99. Still, you know, working in his garden, doing all the things. It's amazing. But he had paid for Bupa, which is the the private supplement, you know, the, the kind of comparison of the American model that you can get in the UK. But the older these men and women get, the more expensive it becomes. So they paid mm. their whole life. And when it was finally time for them to use it, they just... They priced them out where they couldn't even use it. So they spent all that money for almost nothing. The NHS care, I saw this 99-year-old man get riddled with cancer. I have never seen such great care anywhere. So to mirror what you said about the NHS, you hear all these nightmare stories about, oh, this person died in the waiting room of the hospital. Yeah, well, inner cities tend to be overcrowded. And it's just, it's, you know, it's a sad reality of living in, a, in an inner city. But the hospice care, the the home um, doctor's visits. After he passed, they visited my grandmother for about two, three weeks after that. You know, it was it was absolutely amazing. So, when I have someone organically who understands the NHS, I like to use this to, to discuss it because, you know, when fully funded, I think it is the most altruistic, beautiful healthcare system on the planet. Yeah, it's, but also like it's it's a part of national pride in uh, in the UK. It's massive part of national pride. Like they uh, during COVID, they had like you know sort of uh, parades and and stuff like that. Like they were massively overworked, but it's the sort of thing where it's like um, depending on uh, I I think in in America where it's like the strong sort of support of uh, uh, of the American army and of like the troops where it's just sort of like thank you for your service. Like the the, the NHS has a sort of um, uh, uh, in some ways like meaningless support where it's like you know yeah the nhs it's like but like what like what does that mean it's like people putting out like we support the nhs in their um uh like uh, uh during covid when there was like all the sort of the banners to support the nhs but it's like yes nice but like that's a completely fucking meaningless gesture like you get your kids yeah right nhs and we'll stick it up on the window i'm good i'm helping society it's like you don't fuck all but like it still is a nice thing and i'm sure like as a um uh like some of the actual nurses i'd like to think some of them would be cynics and look at it as like what the fuck is this shite and then other ones would be kind of like uh yeah it's nice that sort of um you walk in and you're wearing your um uniform on your way to uh the hospital and like someone will sort of stand up and let you take a seat and it's just those little nice courtesies that uh sort of um are built up and i think that same sort of mentality of that uh supporting of something because they can sort of see it's like that is definitely something that would be uh useful to to get involved in in america and i think also with Due to how fucking loud and patriotic the Americans love being, I think that it would spread very well across the world because people would be like, yeah, fuck it, this is the best healthcare system in the world. And when you actually have something where it's like, you know, yep, it's hard to contest with, then like, you know, um, I think it could spread around and it's sort of, geez, I'm starting to sound like a big fucking hippie, but like, you know, <laughs> oh, make, the, make the world a better place. I think it would though. And here's the thing, I mean, Right, the way it is in America, and I do have, you know, lens. I've lived in multiple countries around the world. We have a profit-based healthcare system. So I'm no econom you know, economist, but if the get the goal is to make money, where's the checks and balances to keep people healthy? It's not. 
You know, if I want to yeah. keep you alive, but I want to keep you sick. So here's your blood pressure meds, here's your diabetes meds, here's, you know, all the meds, the painkillers, everything. Whereas if you have, as we said, a model where, hey, the healthier people are, the more of the budget we get to keep, you know, the more we can put in reserve. Well, now's your push to actually make people healthier. And, you know, recently in the UK, sadly, I've seen people getting bigger and bigger. So we're missing somewhere, something along the way. But if you truly put it back to the way it was supposed to be and put real food back in schools and make sure kids are doing a lot of PE, build more pedestrianized, you know, city centers, then it's the most beautiful model. You know, we want you to be as healthy as possible. A, if a virus sweeps across the planet, it's not a big deal because most of you are going to be just fine because you're healthy. And B, that's more money for education and the fire service and everything else that we need to put these budgets in because you guys are so damn healthy, you're saving us money. Yeah. yeah. So something I always like to sort of daydream about is, uh, right, so if you were the, you're just the... You got to be realistic about the um, sort of policies that you bring in, but you are the tyrannical leader of the entire world. So what would be your three policies that you get to uh, put in? So you can't just sort of, your policies have to be realistic in the sense that people would actually kind of do them. Like if you're going to be like, everybody follows David Goggins on fucking uh, Instagram and follows him word for word. And everybody's like, you know, hard as nails, like they're not going to do that. So you have to be realistic with your policies. What sort of things would you introduce? I honestly think it starts in the schools. So I think that only real food, just only real food. So you can be McDonald's or Burger King or whatever, but you have to work with real food. No more factory farming bullshit. So that would be one. The model that, again, as much movement as possible. So again, whether it's more bike lanes, pedestrianized areas, whatever. So getting people eating well, getting people moving well. And this this is tyrannical or is this, this trying to trying to fix things? Oh, no, like it, it tyrannical. But I mean, like, you know, so therefore, because uh, you're in complete power, you have absolute power. But like, you know, you can... You can do what you want. Okay, so like a positive health tyrant. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So so those two, and then I think community as well. Nine tyrannical. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, so putting, you know, removing pigeonholes and labels and pulling people together and forging that community. So now you've got good food going in your body, you've got movement, and you've got that being a part of a tribe. So that would be my three pillars I'd hit. What about you? We have to get you into power now. (laughs) (laughs) What would be your three? Uh, I'd tax sugar for one, and I'd uh, try to, so, similar to yourself, to focus on uh, food. I'd, uh, I'd like, I would never try and shut down um, a business because that's taking away uh, a freedom that uh, I think people um, are more than entitled to have. And, um, but I, I do. I dislike the idea, the sort of the the culture of constantly giving sugar, and grandparents are terrible for it. And I'm speaking for my own, um, not my grandparents, uh, but like my mother and father to my brother's um, children. So like my my nieces, and they're like they're not the worst in the world, but it's just sort of like. St- because my brother is uh, uh, and his wife are very conscious of uh, diets and health. And so they're quite a no sugar family. And then grandparents sort of like slip them little bits of sugar every so often. It's like, you don't need to do that. Like stop kind of 
secretly making it like you know shh, don't tell your parents like this is a secret treat because you're still sort of at you're you're almost adding to the excitement of getting this thing that it's like well, as soon as they start getting pocket money and they're making their own choices about like what to do they're going to be like oh, we can get chocolate now this is fucking great but if you start from the start where it's like rather than giving them a little treat that's a chocolate be like you know hey i got you this little thing it's lego and now they're learning how to construct something how to build something it's not like you know it's hard to replace the habitual giving of sweets to people with something else um a simple example that i can think of is when it's like a birthday party and uh cake is always the uh, the thing that is is given um i think if you just sort of uh, compare it to booze and i'm not saying like booze is great for absolutely everybody but i think alcohol consumption can actually lead to uh, quite a lot of happiness if you go to a musical music festival and uh, booze it breaks down the um the inhibitions and it just sort of makes people a bit more fucking wild and you end up doing some crazy fun stuff whereas you could be hung over the next day and if someone was to say to you hey would you take back your intake of alcohol and i imagine a lot of people would say oh i'd take back a bit but i wouldn't take back everything whereas because it would change the circumstances that you were in you'd be sober you wouldn't be quite as loose you'd enjoy yourself because it's a fucking music festival but um if you were to compare that to a birthday party and it's like hey if i could click my fingers now and have it that you didn't eat the cake would you do it i'd say most people would be like oh yeah yeah and i take it back because it didn't actually contribute to uh the fun that i had on my birthday it was just the, the very few seconds where the cake was in my uh mouth and outside of that it was gone that was it it's like a moment on the hips or was it a moment on the lips uh, a lifetime on the hips and what's the other one uh, nothing tastes as good as being skinny but um there's like and even within that you know, you can go the other way and think, oh, well, can you not apply that to all forms of food? And I would disagree with that because if you have like a good, healthy meal, it's like your your mind knows you're eating something that is nourishing. And so you have this feeling of, oh my God, that was fucking delicious. And at the same time, it's like, there's another thing. It's, oh my, and it was like, you know, those vegetables were so good. That chef is amazing. And it's like, you have, um, not only uh, a lack of guilt, but it's almost like uh, an encouragement of um, this is like a benefit to, this is like the optimal fuel that I can have in my body. And even if it's a placebo effect as along with the actual physical effects, you feel like I've got more fucking energy here. Like, and it's sort of, it hypes you up. Um, and I think that would be one thing that I would, uh, try and just really kind of take a big curb on, and then the other two would be: uh, I wouldn't have anybody be allowed to have more than one house, or more than two houses. That's just like the landlord situation is insane, and it's a it's a it's an ongoing thing where once you have a um once you have two houses or once you have three houses, it's just like 
and uh, y- the game is rigged. You can just keep renting them out, renting them out, making more money, buying another house. Someone is too poor to buy their own house. Most people are too poor in Ireland, especially to buy their own house. So therefore, they all have to rent the uh, the things. That money, instead of going into buying their own house through a mortgage, is now going to someone who already owns a house, thus making them more rich, and therefore they can buy another fucking house. And it's like it's an endless cycle. It's getting much worse, and you can see it in Ireland. Like we're a we're a first world nation. We're highly educated, and it's something like sixty five percent of um, I think it's twenty five to thirty uh, five year olds still live with their parents. And it's like, that's a shocking amount of, of people, especially when you compare that to uh, how people lived 20 years ago. Um, now, I don't have my own house, but I have a place in London where I, where I live. But like since when I'm in Ireland, I stay with my parents. It'd be insane for me to um, stay anywhere else. That might be a bad example, seeing as I'm on sort of, sort of holiday. And um, I think my last one would be I would uh, rearrange the education system so that the f- there's more of a focus on creativity and less of a focus on um, sort of the meaningless shit. Like mathematics, I understand that it's problem solving, but the reason that it's sort of held as such a pro- um, an important thing stems from the industrial um, revolution where the education system was built around that because they wanted people to be good at engineering and um, um uh, managing accountancy and that sort of stuff so mathematics were uh, highly valuable but these days it's sort of weird that we keep focusing on mathematics when phones are just gonna they're they're better than us so it's like why do we have to learn all these um uh, things with problem solving and that's always how it's kind of sold today to the educational system where it's like ah it's not about the math it's about teaching your body how to solve problems it's like fuck off you can teach that somewhere else it doesn't have to be maths that's the that's not the only way where you learn how to um solve problems you teach the kid how to solve problems by giving them lego pieces like it's you don't have to do that so yeah i would encourage creativity because that's one of the few things that ai is slower at overtaking us whereas everything else google sorts it out for you you don't need to study geography google google take care of it don't you don't need to study history google will take care of it Maybe maybe bad example with history because history is more about, you know, don't do that shit. Don't like, you know, <laughs> sign up to that shit. Yeah. You know what happened? Red flags. And, yeah, don't do that again. Anyway, that's my rant over. Well, it's it's interesting how many people I've had, you know, even just in conversations in life and obviously on here as well. And the number of times that I've heard the argument for higher education, and this is obviously not, you know, the road to medicine, the road to law, but all the other degrees well, you know, it, it shows that they can stick with a thing and keep working even when they don't want to. And I'm like, that is a horrible reason, especially in here in America where it's tens of thousands of dollars, sometimes hundreds of thousands, that you're going to take away that you can kind of deal with being unhappy for a while. That's not a very inspiring reason for higher education. And even with the, the prereqs now, they have so many classes, like high-level classes, to go do something where your high school math would have been perfectly adequate i mean i'm all for that level of mathematics but after that if you're going to be an engineer absolutely you got to keep going down the mathematics route but if you're going to be a doctor you're not up there with a white you know a a sharpie doing rain man math you're figuring out very basic you know um as you know because rain man didn't need a fucking sharpie (laughs) (laughs) is he pancakes on a tuesday yeah but but no but it is so it's kind of smoke and mirrors even with that as well so, well, I want to get to your journey. So 
I heard you in um, another interview. It was Sean Atwood. Have I got that right? Uh, the guy yeah, who used so- to be an ecstasy dealer and now is a YouTuber, which is an interesting path. But anyway. Oh, yeah. I think I know who you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. So I think it was a few weeks ago. But anyway, so I just want to give credit to listening to, to you on his. Um, you initially were looking at the fire service. So talk to me about that, paramedicine and then nursing. Yeah, so uh, when I first uh, finished up in the American equivalent of uh, high school, I wanted to, excuse me, um, I wanted to do computer game development simply because I like playing computer games. And I thought computer game development would be far more on the creative side, where it would be more of the breakdown of, okay, what makes this game good? Why is this game better than that game? What makes this appealing? And it wasn't. Uh, I was just uh, a bit ignorant, a bit um, uh, naive, and it was just all programming, and it was uh, like all the sort of stuff. If I'd stuck with it, uh, where I am now probably would be very uh, helpful, but uh, I just couldn't stand. I did. I just didn't like the people who I was around. And one of the speeches that one of the professors gave was that um, the people that you're around are very important because not only are you they're your classmates. You're going to go into business with them. You're going to be hanging around people like this your whole life. And it was just like, um, like I'm a fucking nerd. Uh, but these people, I think it was three of us in the whole class that weren't just like 1980s stereotypes for like when you hear the word nerd. And it was just sort of like all of them were just poor with social skills. Uh, they didn't have hobbies that were outside of, you know, just indoor stuff and it was just sort of like i don't really want to be around like people like this that are just sort of cookie cutter like copy and paste human beings i want to be around people that you can sort of have a a liveliness to them and so um i made this like pat myself on the back a bit here but i kind of made the smart decision of being uh, aware that who i was around would probably be more important than what i was doing and i'm i stand by that quite a lot um there's no road too long in good company. And uh, so I quit that. And then the next thing that I went to quite quickly was um, uh, a fire fire and safety management, which was not. I didn't go anywhere with it because the fire department wasn't hiring at the time. When I graduated, it was um, a recession in, in, in Ireland, but I wanted to be a part of the um the fire department so it was uh that was my focus at the time and then when i when i graduated from that and i couldn't get a job as a as a paramedic i would have been a step down i don't know if it's called an emt in the united states i think it might be it is funny i had yeah so we have emts and then we have paramedics but i had a dublin firefighter and i you know it wasn't arrogance it was just um not being educated i said oh you guys are paramedics you know the rest of the uk you're either a medic or a firefighter I said, did you, when did you guys adopt the American model? And he was like, we didn't. I said, you, we've had this since I think it was 1898, a version of, obviously not paramedics as we know it today, but they had combined a kind of EMS first response element to Dublin. So Dublin's actually extremely unique in the England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, whatever the collective PC term is for all four countries. Are they? Um, I thought that it was the same thing in the UK, where it was like uh, that they're all paramedics as well as being firefighters. Is that not the case? No, no. You've got um, usually the you know the NHS medics are in an ambulance, and then the firefighters, and they're pushing now towards a higher level of um, EMS training. 
but yeah, I mean, for as long as I remember, even when I was little, you know, you had the 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 fire brigade and you had the ambulance, and they were two different. And then you had St. John's ambulance, which is obviously another another layer of EMS. But but yeah, yeah, no. So now they're starting to shift towards it more. So Dublin, the city of Dublin, I think was the only place, unless anyone listening can educate me, the only place that actually had that combined system, and it was way before America. Wow. I didn't know that about the UK. I should have focused on joining the uh, like the London Fire Brigade more. I would have come in and be like, hey, lads, I'm fucking massively overqualified for you fuckers. <laughs> Give me a job. But um, yeah, after the uh, after the recession happened, I, I started looking around for, right, if there's not going to be a proper job here, like I, I should just try and get more of an education so that when jobs become available, I'll be able to, you know, get a better one. And the NHS were doing nursing. Uh, and the NHS were funding your education. Another example of like, you know, sort of the uh, yeah, socialism is bad. It's like they were attracting me over to uh, live in the UK because the NHS were willing to pay for my education uh, as a nurse. Uh, my hope was that I would get into the A&E department and sort of it would be like similar to what I liked in um, in being a paramedic, which was. Uh, same thing. What I was going for with the with a firefighter was the uh, the excitement. The sort of this is a major problem. You have to do your best to solve it. If you don't, there's very few other people to blame other than yourself. So I quite like that um, that level of pressure. And something that I came across very very quickly was that uh, as a nurse, the, the huge difference is the autonomy. So you do not have nearly close to the level of autonomy that you do as a, a paramedic. First thing that you almost always have to do is shitloads of paperwork, ask for a doctor's permission. The doctors often know that the nurses are more than capable to make their own decisions, um, but they still have to be found to give the sign-off, which is uh, like needless red tape that uh, affects the uh, the proper um, treatment of patients, in, in my opinion. And... Um, at that point, though, because I had quit computer game development, I didn't want to quit a second time because I was like, you're fucking committed to this. Don't don't be someone who's quit college twice. You can't be one of those people. And I got to my third year. And when I was doing my dissertation, I had um, this sort of moment where I just couldn't physically do it. I sat in front of a computer that was... Um, uh, in one of the hospitals and it was uh, uh, attached to uh, what's called uh, an ethernet or, or an intranet, uh, I can't remember which one it was called, uh, connection where I could access all these different medical documentations, but I couldn't go on uh, Facebook or YouTube. So it was like the perfect environment to study and to do your work. And I would sit there looking at a blank stream, a screen and I'd look up different sort of um uh, re, uh, research papers and read through them out of a sort of a curiosity, but I could never actually decide what I was even going to do my dissertation on. And after a couple of weeks, I finally sort of realized there's a reason that you're not doing this. It's because you don't like this job. You've been on so many different placements and none of them have been um, uh, a, a, like an enjoyable place to work with the exception of the dermatology ward and the only reason that I really liked that was because the uh, the London Olympics were going on during that time and the dermatology ward, ward um, most of the patients are able to get up out of bed 
So we watch the Olympics together with the patients. <laughs> so like, and that's a that's escapism. So like, that's not a good reason to want to get in somewhere. I wanted to get a job in the dermatology award so that I could watch television. It's like you need another fucking job, my friend. Um, so yeah, I quit that and then I went into um, uh, sports science. I sort of I developed a a, a keen interest in um in fitness and the sort of the biology that was related to it. And sort of uh, a lot of what I learned from nursing sort of transformed into that because it was like, you still learn how the body works and uh, quite a detailed amount of anatomy. And then, so I took that knowledge and uh, studied sports science, really liked it. Uh, and I've been sort of working in that field since. And now, I mean, like I'm doing stuff on social media, but like the foundation of it is based off of the shit that I learned in sports science. It is still like, you know, um teaching fitness classes it's just there's a camera in front of them now and then also learning how to improve my own um physical endurance physical fitness so that i'm able to run more marathons and that's you know you got that from an education so when i was young i wanted to be a doctor and then it's funny enough it was mathematics that caused me to stumble because you get to a level physics and chemistry and like wait a second i thought it was just like weighing stuff and putting Bunsen burners on like oh no no it's all math now so uh, well I'm out <laughs> I'm not yeah. gonna be able to do this and then fast forward a long time I realized that it was the paramedic role that I wanted to be and even now I have the prerequisites with my degree to be a nurse practice uh, sorry not a physician a uh, physician's assistant which is kind of like almost a doctor but not you're still reporting to a doctor but you're doing high level stuff but there's zero interest to be in a hospital for me so I, I can totally yeah. attest to that with the sports science, I, I ended up doing sports science in what was University of North London. Now I think it's Metropolitan University, and it was great. And then I oh, finished. Oh yeah, off. yeah, I applied to them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, they're really easy to get into because I got in, and my grades were terrible. So you might want to try again. <laughs> but um, but what was disappointing is I went in thinking, okay, great. Now I'm going to be able to come out and be a you know a great coach and you know take a lot of that and use it as an athlete. But because it was so academic focused. There was a lot of how to test, you know, vertical jumps and VO2 max and stuff, but an actual practical application, I found that I've actually become a much better coach just from taking, you know, seminars and, and you know, certifications and those kind of things than I did. So with you being an athlete, you know, you finally get to sports science. Now, what was your experience? Did that tr carry over well or did it give you a foundation you still had to then do certs to, to truly understand the movement? Um, do you mean like actual going to uh, university has improved my sort of uh, the education that I that I kind of had naturally? Yeah. So I think what I, what I saw is that my sports science education was very academic and didn't really carry over to coaching specifically. So you, oh, yeah. you made you a good researcher and you could then be a professor of sports science. But to just go in and say, I want to be a better athlete, I want to be able to coach athletes. Both of those two programs, England and America, I didn't find that there was a lot that carried over to being a coach or an athlete specifically. No, I um, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, so, like, I loved the university that I went to. I absolutely loved St. Mary's. Uh, I had a brilliant time there. made loads of friends. Uh, it's an amazing little um, university. Uh, however, the actual, like, what I was sort of, sort of forced to learn, like, let's put it like that, had to learn in order to uh like you know pass my exams uh fucking useless completely useless um didn't really uh, uh 
sort of take anything from it that was really helpful. Uh, YouTube is by far the best uh, university that uh, I ever uh, attended and still do attend because it has something that um, lecturers often don't have, and that's the sort of the a combination of the freedom to learn what you want, when you want, but also people who are making those videos uh you have to come from an entertainment point of view so there's this added level of uh storytelling where you have to uh display things in a way that makes it more um tasty it makes it more sexy make those uh make those scientific research things more sexy but it's like you know same sort of thing where it's like if you were to uh, study zoology and i'm sure that could be seen as like incredibly boring and then you can go like uh, all right Zoology, boring subject matter. Now get David fucking Attenborough to teach you zoology and suddenly it becomes the greatest, uh, you know, uh, subject to, uh, to, uh, to, to study in school ever. And it's entirely down to, um, I think, how who is uh, educating you is more important than what you are uh, looking for. Because, like, you can only get so much... Well, I wouldn't say you can only get so much from a book. You can only get so much from basic information like lists. However, when you have like a good author that is showing you the interesting stuff within said lists, like Malcolm Gladwell, uh, who's done like, you know, Freakonomics and uh, all sorts of books where that is basically what he does is he looks at data and then he gives you a very uh, interesting interpretation as to what that data leads to. And I think that is uh, far more important for education is to sort of, if you really want to learn something, you got to kind of fish around for it and find a good teacher. And you can do that now um, with YouTube and sort of the books that you read and um, podcasts that you listen to, especially this one. Oh, this is the best podcast <laughs> ever for motivation. Learn how to live life and dealing with terminal brain cancer. Oh, you can't find fucking better. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. <laughs> All right. Well, then I want to get to your diagnosis. But before we do, an interesting thing that I heard you discuss on Sean's podcast was being part of the medical research programs. So how did you get into that? I'm assuming finances are probably part of it. And then walk, oh, yeah. walk me through you know, those experiences prior to your diagnosis. Oh, yeah, 100% finances. I wasn't doing it for any other reason whatsoever. Uh, it was just a, uh, from my perspective, um, like I, I'm the kind of person that um, I like to uh, work smart rather than working hard. But then on the far side, I also sort of see things a little bit different. Like uh, I did the thing called a tort tour de picnic which is uh, a charity cycle to uh, a music festival called the electric picnic and i i'd done that about 10 years ago and when they first came up with this pitch where it's like you pay significantly less for the ticket to the music festival you have to raise money for a charity but once you hit that number then you get to uh, cycle to the electric picnic um they mind your bike and they send your bag there with you so you don't carry your backpack while you're going to the music festival. And then they give you a free bus ticket home on the Sunday. And for me, it was just like, why didn't this sell out before the tickets to Electric Picnic? Because this is just 
way better. People pay to go to marathons. You have to raise the money, but you still have to pay like a, a ticket price. You have to pay like a hundred dollars or a hundred quid. And so I was looking at this, like this is the fucking best of all these different worlds come together. And loads of other people are like, oh, I don't want to do a big long cycle to the music festival. And it's like, okay, but like, would you would you do a marathon? Would you do like, you know, a, a race where it's sort of it's like, oh yeah, I do something like that. It's like, what's the fucking difference? It's the same thing, except now you you don't have to pay. Now you pay to get a music festival ticket. Like it's just fucking, it was bizarre how other people just didn't see it the way I saw it. And uh, I think it was the same thing with medical research where it was like, okay, so I'm going to get something that is a vaccine for HIV. I'm like, you know, not to shit on any, but like, I'm I'm a straight guy and uh, I don't particularly like sleep with a huge amount of people and um, I don't do a lot of drugs. So the chances of me being a risk for uh, getting HIV, very low. But to still be able to think like that I have a resistance to um, HIV because I'm doing this medical trial and there is zero chance that I could actually get HIV because uh, vaccines you give. Um... What are you doing here? Hey, yeah. You're in a podcast there. All right, okay. Look, I'll see you later on then. Yeah. Everybody, this is my mother. Hi, all. Good. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> you can... Hi, William. Good luck with your book club. Yeah, you can include that if you want. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, what was it? What was the so round thing about? Talking about oh yeah, so oh um, the medical trials, yeah, yeah. they're having the resistance to HIV. Yeah, so uh, again, it was the same sort of thing where it was like such a small amount of effort. It was just like uh, they were taking my blood and they gave um, uh, what was like uh, the the way that uh, the vaccine in this particular situation worked was they were going to give me uh, dead bacteria, or the dead virus or whatever uh, that would cause certain uh, kind of. Uh, guards, defensive guards in my immune system that would uh, pop up, and they were the same guards that were um, that would be helpful against HIV. So, um, it's not like uh, when you're giving like uh, a smallpox versus uh, what was what was the first vaccine based off again? It was like smallpox versus ch- chickenpox, or do you remember that story where it was like the person who was um, working within cattle and they were like milking the cattle and they found out that they had a resistance to yeah. the plague. Yeah, I forget which one it was. I, I'd, I'd hate Same. to throw the wrong one out there, but I do remember the story vaguely. Yeah, so it was that sort of thing where it's like, uh, but I didn't have to, the particular kind of vaccine that they had, I didn't have to suffer through the, uh, you're getting another kind of disease. They were just saying, there's no chance that you're going to get this. So I was like, okay, cool, I'll take that. It seems to me that there's no... um um downsides to it now there's obviously this horror stories that are are out there where it's like you know oh so and so has had like you know um they died of going on a um uh a vaccine trial or not a vaccine trial a um like a uh oh god i can't even think of the the word now a clinical trial a clinical trial for new drugs coming up and it's like yes true there's also horror stories of people dying in planes there's horror stories of people like, you know, dying in public uh, transport buses. It's like every, I don't know, this is different because it's like, it's the choice of you doing this, which is, you know, that it is dangerous. But I would argue that's the same thing for if you're going on a holiday, it's like, you're still making a choice to uh, take a flight, which is actually the safest way to uh, travel. But like, you know, people have it in their mind where 
um, it's a dangerous thing to do. But like, if you don't want to, if you want to live a life where there's absolutely no danger in your life, that's going to be a shit boring life, my friend. And um, yeah, so that's the way I looked at it. Went in, I had my uh, my my treatments done on several different um, human guinea pig trials that I did over the course of maybe seven years, I'd say, uh, since I did the first one, and I never had a bad experience. In terms of how much money I was paid, I never had a bad experience out of any of them. I think the worst one I ever had was a a paracetamol, um, a new form of paracetamol that they were doing to see if it would be more effective than the normal paracetamol that we deal with. And the drug itself didn't actually cause me any hassle whatsoever. The only thing was that they had to give me a fake flu. So they gave like dead bacteria that emulated what a flu looks like. Uh, and then so what my body's um, uh, defensive system did was as soon as it detected, hey, we've got bacteria in here, heat the body up, get the, uh, you know, the high temperature, uh, the headaches, all those things, the inflammation. That is your body's way of di- of killing the disease that's coming in. And then once it realizes, hey, wait a minute, no, we're all right here. This is dead bacteria. We don't need to false alarm, false alarm. All right, let's calm down the swell- swelling. Let's calm down the um, the fever. Uh, let's calm down on the headaches. And that was unpleasant to go through all that. However, it, like I got paid like two grand to do it. It's basically like a bad hangover. I think most students would take a bad hangover for a, uh, a bad hangover without the preceding fun that you'd get on the previous night. Uh, and then you get two grand and then you get to have many hangovers, but say, there has, there's lots of fun. Yeah. You can fund your hangovers then. <laughs> yeah, you can. Get like fancy hangovers with like, you know, champagne and whatnot. So correct me if I'm wrong. Prior to the discovery, you were actually asymptomatic from the cancer itself. I'm still asymptomatic. The only thing that I've had related to my uh, brain cancer, uh, I would argue was probably more due to the fact that I had a craniotomy and then radio and chemotherapy uh, because before the surgery, no issues. Six days after the surgery, uh, I had issues with uh, my ability to speak. Um, basically, if uh, in America, do they have that board game, Articulate? I'm sure they do. I'm, I'm yeah. not. I've been, I was thinking Operation because you were holding that in uh, one of your Instagram yeah, in posts the other day. <laughs> nah, articulate is a very simple thing. It would be like, uh, I know there's no camera here, but like, you know, there's a, uh, an empty beer bottle in my hand and you've got to be like, okay, here's, uh, it's a, it's something that is a, it's made of glass, it's brown, it contains something that's alcoholic. And then someone has to go like, uh, oh, is it a wine bottle? And you're like, no, 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 it's not a wine bottle. Uh, keep within that is a beer bottle. Yes. Okay. So you have to describe words without um, uh, saying the word itself. And it was basic when I when I lost my ability to speak properly, it was kind of like an extreme version of that where um, I could look at things. I know what they were, but it was just like a load of different words were just at the tip of my tongue and I was unable to um, say them. And one thing as well that was very odd with uh, my particular uh, brain cancer, because it was I'm, I'm right handed. So the left temporal lobe uh, it is associated with um, your ability to speak. But um, within that, it was very strange and it was really good for, you know, sort of staying on a positive mental um, state because it would it would be difficult at some points. And then you'd go off and like take a break 
and an hour later, maybe two hours later, maybe three, you'd come back and you'd be able to hold a conversation again. So even though you'd go through spells of not knowing, um, not being able to read texts, not being able to understand what's going on in a film and um, lots of other little things like that, you'd kind of be able to forgive yourself or like not get so angry at the situation because, hey, this will pass. And this is the doctor said it'll pass that it'll like give it give it a couple of hours, maybe have a nap and, you know, come back and you'll be uh, the things will return. And so they also said that this would go on for a year, may like six months if I was lucky and it took six days. And then I was back to, you know, having the ability to speak as as well as I am now. And it was sort of like, okay, that's uh, if I've got that kind of stats for, you know, the cranioptomy, that probably means that I'm, uh, even though they've said that statistically it's five years for my um, uh, life expectancy, I probably will get more than five years. I know that the cranioptomy and the ability to speak is not actually directly related to uh, the cancerous tumor. That's more related to the surgery itself, but it's still sort of like, hey, I got an okay brain. It's like, you know, it's good at repairing itself. So that probably means that it's good at fighting against the cancer as well. So yeah, that's kind of where I stemmed the uh, the happy disposition that I'm quite known for. But um, yeah, I can't remember what the question was what brought me to this place. I think we went all kinds of places, which is brilliant. Yeah. So I'm going to come back to clinical trials. So mm. some people listening like, oh, my God, you know, putting yourself through that. That ended up being the life-saving intervention when it came to diagnosing it because you had no symptoms. So walk me through that, the kind of the 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 road of the different diagnoses from initial to, okay, this is more severe. And then let's talk about the surgery. Cause I know that's quite a unique procedure in itself. Yeah. So the, um, <clears throat> um, funnily enough, I like, even though you might think that I was constantly doing a lot of clinical trials, I wasn't, I probably would have done like maybe one a year for seven years. Um, however, uh, one time because of uh, sort of the, the job that I had, it was quite freelance and um, I did a, a medical trial and you have to wait three months until you're able to do another one. Uh, but then there's also the question of um, are there trials that they actually want to have people like yourself? So like I'm a young, uh, fit, healthy male. They often don't look for that. They'll look for people who are smokers. They'll look for people who have diabetes. They'll look for all sorts of people. It's not just like you can show up and they'll always have a trial ready and waiting for you. Um, however, after three months, they um, contacted me and they're like, hey, Ian, we've got another trial that actually fits you. And I was sort of like, oh, wow, this is this is quite rare that they would ask me to come on another one this soon. And then also uh, I had time off work. So it was like, this is really weird. The planets align. Now that's that's relevant to this part of the story because the previous medical trial that I was doing, they were doing what's called a CT scan on my brain, which is, um, uh, if this is mostly an American audience, uh, start fucking watching rugby, guys. It's a much better sport than American football. I'm sorry, I know I'm biased, but it just is. And uh, it looks very similar to what's a scrum cap. And so they have these little nodes in and they detect brain waves. And that's what they were testing in the previous medical trial that I was doing. And I probably had brain cancer at this point. I've had a brain tumor at this point, just statistically very likely. And they were not detecting anything wrong with my brain function whatsoever. 
Then when I was doing the uh, starting up the next trial, they were doing something that was specifically for the brain. And so that they went further and they did an MRI where they were able to look inside at the sort of the, um, the cellular uh, appearance of my brain. And at that point they were saying like, okay, we've seen that there's a tumor in here. Uh, it looks like it's benign, but you need to get it checked a second time. And so the second time we got checked, it had grown. And so they were like, okay, this is not benign. Um, second scan shows that this has uh, grown a little bit. Uh, sorry, not grown a little bit, grown significantly. It's now 33% larger than it was. This is likely cancerous. We need to uh, operate on this uh, straight away. And so the idea of the fact that they were testing my brain recently it's not just that I didn't have symptoms. They were actually doing tests on me and nothing was detected. And it was only that I did this particular medical trial. Like the, the chances of it are so fucking baffling that I can't even like, I can't even like, you know, I'll pr like fold my hands and pray to the Lord who I, I don't particularly uh, believe in massively. I'm, I'm not a very religious person, but like that sort of like, thank the fucking, um, the maker, thank the maker for the uh, like the the chances of this happening are fucking tiny, and yet I was one of the lucky people who uh, was in this particular scenario. So like this is why I constantly am saying that I'm um uh one of the I am the most unlucky lucky person on the planet because fair enough. Like it wouldn't it be nice if you did that medical trial and they just paid you for it because you didn't have a fucking brain tumor, but it's like, yeah, fair enough. Right. You got to kind of glass half full this shit, but, um, that's, that's a better way to live life. And so from that, I got the second scan, uh, the second scan quickly led to, uh, going in for the brain surgery itself. That was during COVID. Um, over COVID, I had been starting up my own uh, YouTube channel just to uh, play video games on. So it was less of a, a waste of time and far more of a uh, something that's productive. I really like the idea that I could turn uh, like playing play video games and have a sort of a, a little audience. And we could like, you know, uh, uh, raise a bit of money for uh, for a charity just for fun. I, I was going to call it like uh, do a thing where it's like every time I complete a game, it's like, ah, there you go. Everybody's got to donate like a little uh, a fiver into the charity. So let's just sort of like something for a bit of fun, get a bit of uh, something positive out of something that can be quite negative in terms of wasting one's time. And so because I already had the social media channel, um, I was very aware that like, right, if I'm going into... Uh, have a cranioptomy one i'm going to have you can kind of see a little bit of like the the hair is less thick there hard to see especially hard to see if you're unable to see it at all if you're uh, uh exclusively an audio aud audible listener and uh yeah but i have like a slightly thinning hair on one side of my um my head on the other side it's good fucking thick but generally i i have a fucking like an absolute jungle of a head so um i don't need to have a calm over but I, I i knew that like straight off the gate start with that like that's very subtle like if i had my hair like that if you were able to see this you wouldn't really notice it it kind of needs to be um uh uh, told to people um so again gotten quite lucky with that uh but at the time it was very it was impossible not to see it was a giant scar um uh across the side of my head shaved head while i went through the radiotherapy um 
uh, they so they shaved my head for the actual surgery. However, I I lost the hair afterwards, and that was due to the radiotherapy where they blasted me with a uh, radiation at different angles in order to uh, pinpoint the brain tumor, but sort of leave the radiation out like in other places, not as uh, deadly. And after that sort of the hair loss, it was like, right, there's no way you're going to be able to uh, get back to doing your social media stuff without addressing the, this gigantic elephant in the room. And apart from anything else, you might like, I didn't know how my craniotomy was going to go. They said that it was going to be a, a, a lower level of the ability to be able to speak for uh, uh, six months, if I'm lucky, not, uh, up to about a year uh, due to my age and the plasticity of the brain. So I was like, all right, you're not going to be as sharp on uh, your ability to speak. So you're going to have to address that ahead of time. You'll still be able to play computer games fine, uh, but you're not going to be able to um, talk and narrate the situation as well. So you have to tell the audience that ahead of time. And so I was kind of prepared for this. And then when they said, like it is cancerous. Um, it's stage three. Uh, it's significant. I asked them about the what's the realistic uh, life expectancy, and then it was due to all the research papers that they had, uh, which is a gigantic bell curve of an average. Uh, they said that the average is uh, five years, and then so I was like, all right, I'm gonna. I have this uh, social media thing that I've started up. I kind of like it. So how about I use that now for something different than what I have uh, established it for? And that's where it kind of started off with all this. Um, uh, follow me. You don't need to donate. I'll get sponsors and then I'll give all the money from the sponsors to charity. It's kind of the the starting point, the first, uh, the first step on the yellow brick road. So before we get to that and all the things that, that you're doing, and we're definitely going to unpack that, I remember sharing a while ago now an amazing video of, I think it was a, a gentleman having brain surgery and he was playing, he or she were playing the violin while they were being operated on. And it was amazing, but I never really understood why. And I heard you describe, you know, tell the, the last host, you know, what it was. So talk to me about the two options and then why you yourself were conscious during your brain surgery. Uh, uh, well, there was more than two options. Do you mean like the the option of being uh, awake during the surgery and uh, versus the non awake? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, for for me, it's basically um, how much of a pussy are you? That's that's purely <laughs> what it is. Because in terms of what's more beneficial, it is unquestionably to do the awake surgery, and uh, an awake surgery is 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 unpleasant. It's not a nice thing to do. However, um. The difference of what you have to go through, it's not like in terms of what the potential benefits are, it's fucking unbelievably like obvious that that's what it like almost like it's a no brainer. It's a simple uh, choice where it's like suffer through three hours of something that is unpleasant versus losing your fucking ability to be able to communicate with other human beings. That's a torture. One of the like. The worst punishment that you can do legally in a lot of Western society is to have someone who's already in prison, which is to isolate. And then if they're not behaving themselves in the prison, then you isolate them further. And that's to, to, to detach a human being from the ability to communicate with another human being. And so that the idea that you wouldn't tolerate some pain that could affect that in my particular situation, it would just it baffles me that someone would take that choice. 
Um, but that is the difference where uh, the when you've seen them playing the violin, that's not just a gimmick. They would often get people to do certain things like that because of the different parts of the brain. Uh, the brain's quite like a um, the different sections relative to uh, whether you're left-handed or right-handed because it changes with the, with that. And I'm sure there's other factors, but that seems to be the main one, which is very interesting, I think. Uh, but it's sort of like uh, I always think of the brain uh, as a uh, a big mansion uh, or a house, whatever way you want to think about it. And uh, each each room has its own function. Oh, it's just seagulls. Um, each different uh, uh, room in the house has a different function. There's the laundry room. There's the kitchen. There's the bedroom. There's the ki- there's the uh, sitting room. There's the blah 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 blah. And they all do different stuff. And so uh, the brain is very much like that, where uh, when you are trying to um, use words, you go and you're right-handed, you go into the left temporal lobe. Um, And now I'm going off a little bit here, but um, something that's fucking amazing about the brain is um, how how you're able to recover from that is uh, so my, let's call it the office for, you know, the ability to speak and during the surgery, what they do is they prod around and they look for the space in the office of your of your brain, not the computer, not the desk, not the functional furniture that is within that space. And so the way they do that is they prong in and then they ask me, um, which is the cat, which is the dog? And they, it wouldn't even be like, uh, it wouldn't even be like that extreme in the slightest. It would simply be, eh. Uh, that's the dog versus that's the dog. And it would just be that pause, that murmur of time um, that they would uh, be like, okay, this is this is furniture that we're digging into here. This is functional brain tissue, whereas the one where he was able to say, dog, cat, dog, cat, dog, cat, that's space. We can get rid of the space. Then after the surgery, what your brain then does is it starts moving the functional uh, furniture into a different space. So if I were to have another brain surgery, if I was to have another craniotomy, which in a in a weird way I I want because that means that uh I have another shot. I have a, a another longevity shot. My surgeon was saying that um because I have recovered so well with my ability to speak, the next time when the tumor is in the same place and they're prodding around, they might not see any lowering of my ability to speak because my brain would have been like that room's fucked up now it's like broken the pipelines shit the like the structures let's not put the office in that room let's move the office completely somewhere else and so it would just be empty space where that uh, tumor is so the next time that they do surgery i might not lose any ability to speak whatsoever even for a day which is i think very um incredibly interesting and so, yeah, those were that was my choice. My choice was uh, awake surgery or not awake surgery, and I, I don't think that it was a, a choice at all. I think one was just a clear, obvious um, path, and one wasn't. When I was in sports science, it was amazing. Back then, we were told, you know, once brain tissue is gone, it's gone. You know, once nerves are, are lost, they're lost. And then now, you fast forward, you know, almost thirty years. The concept of neuroplasticity is making us realize we were just completely wrong. And, you know, you listen to a lot of people in neuroscience. It's, it's this esteemed profession, but a lot of the ones that are in that, um, that science that also have humility, like, yeah, I'm, I'm the 
pinnacle of my profession, but we know 2% of, <laughs> of this thing that we're dealing with. So I think that's beautiful that I've got friends that have had strokes and people that just interviewed a kid that fell off um, a skateboard and initially was undiagnosed and then his brain started swelling and bleeding. And then, you know, he had a series of surgeries himself. But the the hope that it gives people now that have had some sort of brain injury or spinal injury that yes, you know, it's going to take time, but we are getting to the point now where not only can you address that bleed, that cancer, whatever it is, that there is hope for recovery, that maybe you can't speak today, but a year from now, maybe you can get your speech back. So it's amazing to hear your perspective, especially with that more courageous, proactive way of looking at surgery, that they can use that as a metric to preserve as much of the, the function as possible. Yeah, I think for uh, a lot of people, you can just kind of be like, you just need to watch some like Elon Musk interviews and be like, don't worry, we can get like a wire and plug it into your brain and you'll like sink into the matrix. You'll be fine. Don't worry about it. So you come out of the other side. Um, you have been through this journey through initially medicine and then the fitness world. Obviously, you've got the the kind of social media thing existing parallel. Walk me through your mindset as you heal through this initial surgery you know the mental and physical journey and then how did that lead you to magnify that minute kind of charitable element that you'd started in the video game side to what we're going to talk about today um so it's something that i believe quite uh strongly in is there's um uh i think it's Ma- i can't remember what the specific thing is but it's like maslow's theory or maslow's um hierarchy of needs hierarchy of needs thank you very much i really need to write it down because i quote it in nearly every single one of the podcasts that i've ever been on and um the the um the bare bones of it is um sort of you start off with the ability to breathe then you go on to food and on and on and on it goes until you get down to like you know love care family friends uh, uh purpose and it's like down on this sort of pyramid and uh, the, the sort of the highest uh, the, or the lowest point of the um, uh, the hierarchy of needs is uh, kind of gets broken down to purpose. And one of the way that uh, Maslow sort of says about your purpose, and I think it's a really fucking inspiring way to look at it, is um, what a man can be, he must be. And obviously, you know, what a woman can be, she must be. And like that idea of you're you're given this gift and you can in, interpret that as a as a religious thing if you're a religious person if you're not it, it like I don't think it has too much of an, an effect but you are given this gift nonetheless and if you do not avail of that if you don't take advantage of it um this swings into uh, another person who probably has the same sort of uh, likes maslow as well uh, I think his name is Stephen Pressfield. He's an author and he's written um, uh, re, uh, uh, is it The oh, Gates the of books? Fire and all those the ones. The Gates of Fire. That's yeah. it. That's a fucking, never mind 300, been that thing. That's, that's shite compared to Gates of Fire. It's fantastic. But he also did this book called uh, The Art of War. Oh, sorry, The War of Art. And uh, it's basically on just sort of a, a really good book about uh, productivity. And uh, he has the same thing. And I actually ripped out the, the last page and I stuck it up on my wall where it's like um, the artist's contributor or the contribute contribution of an artist. And it, you can interpret artists as anything, whether you're a neuroscientist, uh, whether you're a weightlifter, anything like that. It's like same sort of attitude where it's like you, you don't just it's not about 
hey, I'm going to start off as uh, a stand-up comedian. It's like, oh, fuck it. I don't have the balls. I don't have the, uh, like, it's too scary. The anxiety is, oh, it's too much. It's like, fair enough. However, even though you're doubting yourself, there might be one person who thinks that you're absolutely hilarious. And by you not going onto the stage, you are um, not allowing that person to have the experience of laughing at your joke. So it's almost like you're taking it away from them. If you have it and you don't allow other people to have access to it, you are taking something away from the world. It's not just that you're not contributing. If you have the potential, you've got to give it to the world. And I kind of, uh, I always really liked that idea. And um, when this sort of moment came, it was sort of like enough things in my uh, way of thinking sort of aligned. It was like the planets aligned where it's like, right, you've got brain cancer. Brain cancer is a form of cancer where you're able to function quite well, particularly in your situation right now, because you have no symptoms, you'll be able to function very well, 100% up until a point, and then it'll hit you very quickly and bang, you're going to die. Now, cancer as a uh, a title or a stigma, people are going to think cancer, um, skinny in a, a hospital gown, gaunt, unable to do anything, um, barely able to get out of the bed. So how about you combine those two things with the fact that um, I've run marathons before. I've, you know, I'm, I'm a fit guy and I know how to get fitter. I know how to remain fit, you know, just fucking recovery and all that sort of shite. Um, so take advantage of all these things that are now sort of in your library or uh, in your arsenal. And if you combine them on, you're now creating a story where you have this t- like kind of uh, title of a cancer patient, but you're defying what that um, title is meant to look like. And therefore, if you do that, you're going to get a lot of people looking at you because it's such a unique uh, story, even though specifically brain cancer, it doesn't affect your ability to um, be physically uh, active. So it's not really as impressive as uh, it's going to be interpreted as. But I kind of knew that that's how things were going to go. And then, so I was like, right, I've got that. And now I started fishing around. It's like, okay, how can I make it more unique than that? How can I really fucking stand out? And then it's like, um, I looked up with uh, like uh, Mr. Beast and uh, Pootie Pie. They have the, their sort of social media um, presence. They give some, like particularly Mr. Beast, that's like his whole fucking thing. It's, it's basically the same thing as I do, except uh, he didn't start that way. Uh, Mr. Beast gives shitloads of things to people and people love seeing it because it's so wild, uh, the sort of things that he gives. He gives like Ferraris to people where it's like he picks people up in a, uh, as an Uber driver and uh, he's driving a Ferrari. He picks someone up and then he's like, you know, hey, here's the biggest like Uber tip you've ever gotten. You now own this car and he gives it to the person who was actually, you know, the uh, the passenger. And the thing is, though, is that because those videos go so well, it's a, it's a, it's a tactical, it's a smart uh, investment uh, or uh, in, in money spent versus uh, the money that then is raised by uh, how attractive the video itself is. Now, um, from what I could tell from um, uh, uh, listening to him on uh, Joe Rogan's podcast was where I really started to like the guy. I was just following his as uh, 
his not routine but his idea i was following his idea but i started to really like the guy after the um the podcast where it's like he really doesn't give a shit about money he just like wants to uh to be the best at something and i'm very similar like that i don't give a shit about money so it's like why would i want the money that i would get from a sponsorship why not say from the get-go where it's like guys follow my channel make the channel as big as humanly possible. I don't want the money. I'm happy to give all that money away to charity. As long as I have enough to live, I I don't really give a shit about more money. I like uh, things that are cheap. I like going to the pub with my friends and watching sports. I like uh, walking the dog. I like maintaining my physical fitness. I like playing video games. None of those things are very expensive. And I like, I need to make a video where I'm like emulating the Joker, where it's like gasoline and dynamite, and they're all free. And it's like, we need a better quality criminal. We need a better quality social media wanker. And uh, so that was my sort of uh, focus point. And I was like, uh, I think this will work. It'll be hard to do. I'm sure people are going to call me a scam artist. Um, they never did really though. That was something that I was quite surprised with. No one ever like was like, this is bullshit. This guy's got to keep all his fucking money. No way is he going to give all that away. This is horse shit. And you guys are falling for it. No one ever called me out on it, which I was like, sort of, I had the responses right there and ready to prepare for it. It was like, never happened. Um, I don't know. Maybe it will happen later on. Uh, but, uh, yes. Yeah, so that's, I, I just had all those sort of, uh, ideas and it was just sort of that same sort of attitude of, now that I know this thing, this model that I've thought of, this uh, marketing sort of manipulation of uh, living in the capitalist world, evil capitalism, oh, it's bad. It's like, not if you know how to use it properly. And um, I just went with that because of the sort of the um, uh, Maslow's uh, sort of priority of what what is, um, uh, I see, I've forgotten it fucking again. <laughs> hierarchy Maslow. of needs. Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And then, so within that, it was like, right, what a man can be, he must be. I now have all this knowledge uh, or this uh, like uh, sort of predictions of things that I think I could could do. If I don't do that, um, I'm denying society uh, my contribution. And so that's where I kind of got where I am now. Purpose is so healing. I've had so many people on here, many of whom have been right there about to take their own lives two of them actually went through the attempt and thank god they survived it but when they come out the other end and both of those two are now mental health ambassadors and that has become their purpose like i was in a dark dark place i was given a second chance and and it's amazing watching them thrive now i just did a, a, a 9-11 kind of fundraiser that some of my friends put on in fire department in orange county in orlando and i write the names of everyone i know that that we've lost either I know specifically or worked in, in right in the area where I worked as a firefighter. The first year, which is nine years ago now, I had six names. Two days ago, I had 96 names on my back. Many, many, many of them are overdoses or suicides. Now, I know, you know one of the kind of origins of your charitable element is that you had a loss yourself. So if you would, if you would like to talk to me about that and how that sent you into to the charity and the running side. Sorry, did you say I uh, lost a friend? Yeah, you, did you say you lost someone to suicide? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 No, I uh, lost a friend about... Um... Oh, it's not about, actually. It was 10, 10 years and what are we at now? 10 years and nine months. So, yeah, just a little bit after Christmas. Um, yeah, so that was... 
I wouldn't say it had a big factor on um on my life. Mikey was a, uh, like a, a a good friend of mine. I was actually with him at um New Year's Eve, and that was uh my one of my aunties uh just uh, explained the situation. But like he was in fucking really good form. He was in flying form. And uh, I found it so strange. It was like, I was only a couple of, like I was with him a couple of days ago and he was in like, you know, in such a good mood. I was like, what the fuck happened? And, um, my auntie explained about how, um, uh, often when people who are severely depressed, um, when they, uh, decide to kill themselves, when they started to take their own lives, uh, there's a euphoria of relief, which they, it's so, it's such an odd thing because it shows the power of the mind where it's like you can make yourself be happy um even when you are depressed it's still sort of like the way you think about things just affects uh, uh like you can change your own mind by sitting in a chair you don't have to do anything um i can't remember um what the name of the uh neuro neuroscientist is he's on joe rogan quite a lot uh, sam harrison Oh, sorry. No, no, no. Uh, no, Sam, uh, Sam Harris. And uh, so he, one of the things in one of his books is he was talking about was the, uh, the power of how the mind affects uh, and how much it can and change. And he was talking about how he was in a hostel. Um, I think he was in Vietnam. And he he was asleep in a bed. And then he woke up in a panic because he was having a nightmare. And then he woke up and he was like, stirred, like completely worked up. And then he was realizes, okay, I'm not in a nightmare. I'm not about to die. I'm just in a bed. And so he started relaxing instantly. He starts uh, calming right down. He's going back to bed. And then a rat went over his foot uh, or he just felt something that was wrong in the thing. And it's like, he wasn't getting alarm bells or anything like that. But I was like, there's something going on down in that thing. What's going on down at the edge of my bed? And he opened up the bed and saw that it was a rat. And then I was like, fucking hell, like, you know, shocked him again. And then the rat fucked off. And then he was just thinking about how, like, how little had actually changed in the situation. And yet how much his brain, how much his emotions had changed over such nothing things. Because he got a shock. But then afterwards, like, ah, it's just a, it's just a rat. Like, it's not going to, um, destroy me it's not going to eat me in my sleep um but then it was that he still couldn't get back to bed because like, there's a fucking rat in this room somewhere like and it's making me feel uh, nervous even though he was logically thinking like it's not that bad like it doesn't just because he had seen it it made him so um uh frightful whereas uh, like what's that thing you're um you're never more than two meters away from a rat when you're living in a city and something like that um so yeah that's my sort of my thoughts on ways of thinking and how much it can be affected. Well, what you were saying about your friend, um, oh, I, of course, that's no, okay. We can circle around with that. I had a, a, a guest on Julian Pinot, who's actually a strength and conditioning coach, but he's very, very kind of mad scientist esque with the way he looks. And it's not just training, it's the nervous system, it's the mind. And he lost his brother to suicide. And we were talking, it was quite a while ago now. And you have, you know, fight, flight freeze and flow and he's like you know most of the people that are anxiety and depression are in fight or flight one way or the other he said but we people forget about freeze and he said that's kind of like that's ex the acceptance you know if you think about a deer in the road that's that acceptance and then once that decision has been made there's a 
ironic element that that becomes flow. I've been trying to get out of this nightmare. I finally figured it out. My brain right now is telling me I'm I'm the problem and I'm a burden and all these things that it's you know, this broken brain starts to tell people. And especially, you know, fire service and military, we're fixers. Well, now, okay, I, I figured it out. And I've heard that multiple times, you know, oh, they were they were happier than I'd seen them in, in ages, the day, two days before they took their own life. And then people blame themselves. Like, I couldn't even see it coming. It's like, you can't because they found themselves in that almost flow state. They were freeze slash flow. So it's interesting hearing that because people left behind feel the guilt, but there's no way of knowing. And I guess if anything to take away from this, if you have someone who's always in a dark place and all of a sudden they're happy, ironically, that's actually a red flag. Yeah, it's, a, it's an odd way to sort of think about the, the realization of it, but that sort of brings into the... um Part of the reason why uh, I so we started off with charities for cancer because I was creating my own story. I was the protagonist of my own film. And I kind of knew that even though that's not the charity that I care the most about from a personal uh, perspective, I always think that it's kind of weird and like uh, sort of selfish in a way where it's like, you know, hey, I've got cancer, so I'm going to raise all this money for cancer research. It's like, well, fuck you. Aren't you just like getting people to pay for your health insurance then? Like, it's, <laughs> I always thought that it was kind of funny. But like, it, it's the, it's the, it's the um, uh, I wouldn't say the political norm, but yeah, you get what I mean. It's, it's, it's the societal norm for someone to do something like that, where it's like, you know, uh, I had mental health issues, so I'm raising uh, charitable money for mental health uh, because I know what it's been like to experience it. Um, and so, even though I didn't actually care about raising money for uh, cancer research, I knew my goal was not to uh, focus on a particular charity. My goal has always been, and I'm very, uh, I'm always trying to be as uh, honest and as uh, transparent about this as humanly possible because I don't want people to be like not knowing me for something that I'm not. Um, I'm I'm about the challenge. I'm about the challenge of achieving something that is difficult, hard. Uh, but worthwhile at the same time. So I don't just want to, um, you know, most most bottle caps that are balanced on another one and then plate spinning said bottle caps. I feel like that's kind of cool. Good for you. You did that. You wanted to focus on it. Fair enough. For me, it's got to have some sort of meaning behind it. And so that's why I chose to do the charity stuff. But um, I don't actually have too much of a preference on which charity uh, the money is being raised for as long as it's helping something that I have somewhat of a belief in. If it's like, you know, something where it's like save the grass, but it's like a particular kind of grass and it's the grass for the golf course. It's like, yeah, I, I, I'm not going to try and raise money for that charity. That charity does fucking not, not really have much of an effect on something that uh, is tangible enough for me. Um, but for me, uh, it was it was mental health because um, I'd sort of I had I'd grown enough to know that uh, there's not nearly enough funding for how much it is uh, beginning to affect. And since Mikey's passing um, 10 years ago, I think everybody knows at this stage that uh, it's gotten a lot, a lot worse. And since then, Mikey is not the only person that I am. Uh, I've known who uh, has chosen to take their own life, but I, he was, he was a friend of mine. He was, I, I wouldn't go as far as to say as like, he was a, he was a close friend, but we were, um, we were always in the same friend circle. So like, you know, Friday night, Saturday night, I'd see him, 
you know, and I'd pop over to his house the odd time and, um, you know, we'd, we'd drive somewhere together and that sort of thing. So it's sort of like, uh, you know, the way often within groups of friends, there's certain circles within that. And then the big group always comes together for the, the big events. So I was in a slightly different circle to him, but, you know, to lose him, it was still out of nowhere. It was, it was, it was quite a shock. And I, I didn't, um, <clears throat> I didn't, uh, deal with it, uh, uh, emotionally. It didn't hit me until I had gone from the, uh, from London back to Ireland for the funeral, which was the greatest piss up I've ever been on in my life. It was fucking unbelievable. And then, um, back to London and it was, as easy to explain, easy to think about, but it's like as soon as I was then alienated from my close friends, um, and everybody who knew Mikey, it was like, who do I talk to about this now? It's like no one really, because it's it's sort of I've always kind of had that attitude of talk about things if you feel you need to, but definitely bring them up if you feel that needs to be addressed. But then I also, and I know this is going against so much of what mental health sort of uh, talks about, but I actually think that uh, quite a lot of the time, sometimes not speaking about something and getting on with life uh, has a better effect because it's like you're not bringing up um, uh, a negative subject matter and you're able to almost move. It's almost like you're moving on even though you're just moving on in a small period of time for a conversation. It's like people who never shut up about an ex-girlfriend. It's like, that's not a good thing to talk about. But then if someone was to say like, you know, uh, oh, well, I'm always bringing up my form of um, depression. No one would be like, oh, no, stop talking about it. You just bring up negative things. But I think that there is actually a kind of um, a gray area where it's not helpful to focus on uh, the negative parts that are within your life when at, at the same time, it's vital that you talk about them. It's such a tricky type, uh, um, tightrope. One of the areas I think that doesn't get discussed enough is post-traumatic growth. So you have that event. Of course, you're going to be moved by that. But that is an opportunity to be stronger on the other side. And so I agree with you completely. Talking about it initially, especially if you can find that group. And that's why I think one of the biggest ironies is to be in the middle of North London, surrounded by millions of people and feel so, so lonely. You know, Because if it's not your tribe, it doesn't matter how many numerical humans are around you if you're not able to connect you're not able to connect but the resilience that you can get the growth you can get from doing the hard work and talking about your trauma and then working through it is a very inspiring hopeful conversation just like the neuroplasticity and i had one of the my guests on um who was an alcoholic and some people stay with aa the rest of their life but for him it was like i got to a point it was years later and he was like i don't want to keep being reminded that I used to be an alcoholic. So for him, it was time to move on and he hasn't been to meetings for years and it's worked for him. So I think everyone has a different fit, but definitely having that conversation initially, but looking at it as there's going to be a point when I come out the other end and this is actually going to be a strength now and I can use it to help other people. Yeah. And then that's a really good way of thinking about um, uh, leaving AA behind you where it's like, this is sort of bringing back, bringing back the uh, demons and the sort of. You're always meant to be aware of your uh, your addictions. I certainly have uh, addictions. Mine, mine would be sugar, hundred uh, percent. 
Um, and uh, while I'm a- like able to go long periods of time without ingesting sugar, it's still that sort of thing that I need to be aware of where it's like, you cannot take a small amount because it will fucking set you down the um, the bad pathway. And I think that'd be one of the big things that people are always worried about with with AA is that even though it's sort of like, do I really need this? It's still kind of encouraged to be like, you might think you don't, but it's still like such an important thing to constantly remind yourself that there is a problem. So it's it's a, it's a funny old thing, isn't it? It is indeed. Well, let's talk about the events that you have going at the moment. So talk to me about um, Scotland to Paris, talk to me about Ireland, and then talk to me about the 52 countries. Oh, yeah. So I'm going to get shit-faced in Scotland and then turn an AA to go fuck themselves in Scotland. <laughs> and then I'm going to go cycling while still shit-faced into uh, England. And I'm going to go to loads of different AA meetings while drunk and jump around and be like, yeah, I'm cycling all the way from Ed- Edinburgh. Uh, no, I'm going to be cycling from Edinburgh to uh, Paris. And when I get to Paris, um, it is going to be the Ireland versus uh, Scotland game in the Rugby World Cup which uh, is going to be quite uh, quite tight. I think Ireland uh, like are, would be the hot favourites to uh, to win, but Scotland are they're dangerous. They're very very dangerous. Uh, for anyone who's listening who has been uh, following the Rugby World Cup, uh, the first half of them versus South Africa, who are the uh, the current champions. Now, four years is obviously a huge amount of time, and it almost is a a, a little bit meaningless in a way. Um, to say that someone's the world championship because like four years, that's a long check. That's a completely different team almost. Even the guys who are still on it from the previous championship, they will be different men. It's four years. It's a it's a in the in a sportsman's career that is a a monumental amount of uh, uh, time difference. Um, but nonetheless, they are the uh, they are the the former champions, and uh, some of the way that they're playing at the moment is uh, incredible. It's like they're just they're still changing. Um, they're completely changing different sort of uh, concepts of how to do uh, uh, substitutions uh, on on the team, which has never been never been done before, or sending out uh, a sort of an A and a half squad. And then a B and a half squad to two different locations. They're just doing they're they're doing really interesting s- stuff from the coaching uh, perspective. So you just don't know what you're going to be facing against. But they are very tough. And Scotland were able to maintain uh, a very good uh, composure against them again in the first half. Um, however, Scotland is kind of known uh, for hitting hard, really hard in the first half, and then kind of uh, running out of momentum in the second. And South Africa came back, and um, it was a fairly um, well, con- not concise, but a fairly significant uh, victory to South Africa in the end. But point being is that it is going to be a fucking amazing match, and the fact that I'm going to be able to uh, watch it live in in Paris in a stadium is just so cool. And the and the Parisians and the French they get a bad reputation that I think is based on fucking nothing. All this sort of like, oh, the French are very rude. I've been to France before. I've been to France during the uh, the Euros for the actual um, uh, the football, the, uh, the soccer um, uh, Euro Championship, and they were fine. Like they're perfectly cordial. 
Um, it's, there, it's a big Paris is a big busy city I think it's no different to London and it's no different to uh, New York and that they kind of have their, uh, a sort of a, a cold stoicism where um, they're not going to be like you know hey well, what are you doing over here like oh you're a tourist oh cool like they're busy they got shit to do and they're off and they're, they're doing their own thing but they're not they're not rude I don't like the fact that they have that reputation but um, the idea of what we're doing here is uh, it's going to be a 100-mile cycle and then a 25-mile uh, uh, walk. Now, that's sort of day one, 100-mile cycle, day two, 25-mile walk, and then on and off and on and off it goes. And we have a big team of um, uh, volunteers and then also people who would be uh, kind of known people. Some of them, uh, some of them will be at the, uh, the celebrity level. Uh, again, for anyone who's uh, a rugby fan, uh, Stuart Hogg is actually going to be there, which is like, you know, absolutely huge, like uh, uh, rugby player. Very recently retired, um, played for Scotland. And like, you know, I had him in my my fantasy team for uh, fantasy football team, fantasy rugby team for the Six Nations. And he did very fucking well. So I'll probably be buying him a pint at some time, point. And um, yes, we're going to be doing that. Um uh, do you know uh, Gabby Logan, who's uh, often I don't I know yourself. You uh, you're not you wouldn't really be watching much uh, English sports, but um, you might have remembered her from uh, she's uh, a sportscaster for so many different sort of things within the BBC. Would I probably not because I I left the UK. I think I've been here 21 years now. It's been a long time. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. and I love I love sports, but the only ones I really watch are uh, UFC. So if it's a British fighter, I'd probably know him, but. That's about it. Yeah, yeah. I don't think Gabby's hosting the uh, the UFC at the moment, but um, yeah, she'd be very well known as a sportscaster uh, because she kind of uh, uh does like uh, like uh everything. So it's like uh she uh commentates on the rugby, she commentates on like uh the Olympics and uh, loads of other things as well. So she's a very interesting character, and so she's doing it. And then her husband, who's a former um. Uh, Scottish uh, professional rugby player as well and then there's a shitload of other people who are kind of like if you go through the list uh, uh, probably less so uh, for uh, the American audience but like if, if you live in the British Isles you'd be like oh, I know them I know them I know them and on and on it goes and uh, I've been very lucky and uh, I appealed to um, uh, to the sort of the, the auditions uh, as it were and uh, so I'm going to be amongst that and I think that's going to be like a great little trip because it's it's done in sort of little teams but then we're still all going as uh, as a big as a big group and uh yeah so that's my um i've got to finish off my own little thing that i invented myself uh, and i'm the the sole person doing that which is uh there's 32 counties in ireland and um i'm trying to do uh at this point originally it was going to be a half marathon um a running half marathon in each one of the counties however i kind of um i don't want to say i hurt my knee i'll say i strained my knee and uh, it made running um, just not a smart option. It was just too painful. Uh, and I kind of felt like it would lead to some sort of a snapping of a tendon injury. Whereas I, I am able to cycle and I am able to hike. So I'm just doing a sort of a physical endeavor in uh, every single one of the 32 counties of Ireland. I'm calling it the All-Ireland Charity Championship. And uh, it was meant to be finished up a, um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, however, because of the injury, it delayed everything. So I'm going to finish that one out and then, uh, it's going to be Edinburgh to Paris, which is, uh, going to be organized by someone else. So I just got to show up and do everything, which is going to be a nice, uh, a nice kind of, um, relaxing relief that someone is going to take the chains a bit more, take the reins. How are you crossing the channel? Is that ferry or channel? Um, I'm not sure. I think it's the ferry as far as I know, because if it was the channel, 
Um, I don't. Um, actually, no, probably is thinking about it. This goes. This shows you how little I actually have knowledge of the uh, the organization of the actual thing. But I think it probably would make more sense because if we're going from Edinburgh, there'll probably be like a big coach with all our like stuff in it. Uh, as and then like support crew and that sort of thing as we move so maybe but i don't know maybe the fucking bus will go onto the ferry i don't fucking know uh either way we're not going to be cycling through the channel and we're not going to be cycling on the ferry brilliant and then the 52 miles 52 countries 52 weeks talk to me about that so that is um that is a plan that i have uh way ahead in the future so that is going to be 2025 is what we're aiming for now we've done very little organization of um uh of this it's far more of a concept but um in terms of like uh going through what needs to be done we are kind of hashing that out a lot more so uh there are 52 countries and territories in the, uh, the continent of Europe. Now that's open to interpretation because there'd be like some Wikipedia pages that'd be like, oh, Gibraltar, the Faroe Islands, they're in it, they're not in it, whatever. Like you can make 52 of them and that's what I'm going to do. Um, and again, people would argue like, oh, well, what's what's Europe as a continent? Like, you know, ah, is, is Turkey included? Is Russia included? And it's like on and on it goes. Uh, unfortunately, as you can imagine, Russia will probably be one of the more difficult ones seeing as how uh, Ukraine is 100% involved in um, the continent of Europe. So if I go into one, I'd imagine it's going to be difficult to go into the other one because even if I'm not doing it, you know, crossing the border, I fucking won't be doing that. That will be a nightmare to try and get past. Uh, but let's say I do Ukraine at the start and I do Russia at the end. I would imagine there'll be some sort of a stamp on my passport that'd be like, hey, wait the fuck, why are you, what were you doing in Ukraine? And even it's like, well, if you look at the other 50 places that I've been to, Ukraine was just the the, the first and I need to get into Russia for, the, you know, the the 52nd. But they're, uh, they're not quite known for uh, uh, being really sound when it comes to bureaucracy. So, uh, yeah, hopefully things might have calmed down a little bit for both my own trip reasons. And then, of course, you know, the whole death war thing that, you know, kind of like that to end. Uh, but, yeah, so 52 uh, locations and then 52 weeks in a year. And for anyone who's into their uh, their marathons or their endurance races, uh, a double marathon, an exact double marathon is 52 miles. So I was like, do one in every single. It's very similar to what I'm doing with the 32 county thing now, except focusing exclusively on the um, the 52 um, run. I'd imagine a lot of that will actually be walking because 52 miles is a fucking huge amount of uh, time to be you know uh, on footfall even the like really good ultra marathon runners would look at that and think that's a that's a quite a lot of a, a distance to be doing uh, in any one sort of go but um yeah that's what I'm going to be that's what I'm going to do and I have loads of ideas within uh, that European trip to sort of jazz it up and make it more interesting because it's like uh, I'm doing one day but then I'll have six days uh, to to do whatever I want within that country and some people would look at that and I think they might think off of, uh, first hearing it like oh my god that sounds like the trip of a lifetime god I wish I could do something like that that sounds fucking amazing you get to go around all Europe for a year 
Uh, and I think anybody who's a, a seasoned traveler would kind of know that a year of not having a base where you can just call home and just sort of sit there and like just go through a, a, a normal routine without much changes, it's going to be really fucking hard on um, uh, my sort of mental space, my mental health, my mental fitness. Uh, I'll be around seeing all sorts of fantastic stuff, but I'd say after two months, I'll be sick of seeing like, you know, there's beautiful mountains up there. Uh, there's amazing like churches. There's f- fantastic artwork. And it's like fucking hell. Like that's all I've been seeing uh, for the last three months. I don't need to see more. I need to go home and just fucking like sit in my sitting room and, you know, do whatever. Go to the my the gym that I know, the same gym that I know, not a new gym every day and walk my dog in the same park and see the same friends. Just like, you know do some habitual stuff but um i know that at the same time i'm gonna see some really fucking amazing things and i'm gonna deliberately meet some uh incredibly interesting people along the way and that's what we're gonna try and achieve and of course it's for um charity well going back to your knee for a second um when i'm Getting people on the show, I always go on Instagram. That's the the main social media platform I use. I'm like, okay, well, who do they follow? Who follows them? Just to kind of get an idea of that kind of interest. And you follow Ben Patrick, I think. Knees over toes, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The last time that I was, um, um, the last time that I was over with a really good physio, that's one of the men who he uh, suggested. And truth be told, uh, I haven't actually uh, seen a lot of his um, uh, stuff. I think I need to like l- uh, look at more of his videos and like like a few of them, and then it will come up in my feed due to the the algorithm. So uh, while I do follow him, uh, I'll tell you straight away, I'm I'm not like the uh, the most well versed in um, his actual things. It's just something that was advised to me to do, and I followed suit. Well, I had him on the show. I actually went to Clearwater, where his actual gym is, and trained with him. And then we did an interview. Oh, right. So, so it's it's amazing stuff. I've used his ATG program before. Another one that I'll put on your radar is called Foundation Training. Um, yeah. And it looks it looks like kind of weird yoga. You literally only do it for 10, 15 minutes a day. But I used it initially to heal a back injury I had that I thought was going to end my career as a firefighter, and ended up no surgery, you know, no meds, just healing it with this. But that works really well for the knees as well. And um, Lance Armstrong, Kelly uh, Slater, I mean, a lot of these high-level athletes use Eric's stuff. So uh, it's called foundation training, and I recommend that as well. And you could literally do that, you know, when you get off your bike, for example, or, you know, halfway through a run, you just go into one of these poses and it just stretches everything out. But it's holding, your body weight is making that stretch muscle hold weight as well, which a lot of stretching doesn't do. You relax into the stretch. With this, it's lengthening the muscle, but it's also making it hold, which then puts balance back in, in you know, your legs around your knee and around your back. So I find it phenomenal. I just did this this workout this weekend, and they had to do 225-pound deadlifts for reps. That's it, yeah. And so, you know, I always tell people, this is me without any surgery at 49, still be able to, you know, do these things because of, you know, Cairo and then foundation training. So You're 49? I, mm-hmm. Jesus Christ! I, know, I look man. about sixty, but I'm, I'm. It's been a rough few You're years. You're doing your whole look sixty. <laughs> you look like you're fucking sixty months old. <laughs> That'd be an ugly baby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, what's his name? Uh, Benjamin Buttons. There we go. Exactly. That's what I tell my wife sometimes. 
Um, all right. Well, then we've talked about the events. Let's let's expand a little bit on what people listening can do. So I know there's a donation element, but also it's an interesting thing with followers now, with views. There is a, a financial element from these social media platforms. So talk to me about all the ways that people can support you. So um, the way that I've kind of come to think about it is uh, some people have time, no money. Some people have money, no time. And um, the people who have the money, there's you, you can donate if you want. You can 100% do that. Uh, if you go onto the um, social media platform and then in the link uh, or in the in the bio, there'll be a link and you can you can do that. But my focus is not on uh, receiving donations from um uh, Joe Public. It is from receiving, uh, uh, getting followers is the most important thing. Because if you can donate, good, go ahead. By all means, I'm not going to stop you doing that. Um, but if you can donate, you can also follow. And if you can't donate, you can follow. So it's like there's one thing that everybody can do together. Um, the reason that I have the option to do the donation thing is because some people, uh, where they're like, "Fuck, what you're doing is incredible," but like, I don't, I don't, like, I work in a fucking job. Like, I don't have time to be like liking all your shit and like adding comments and sharing your profile and all that. I, like, I don't have fucking time to do it. I'm a lawyer. I'm busy. I have money. I can give you money. So some people want to contribute, and the way that they uh, want to contribute is they're up to their own um, uh, choices. And the idea being is uh, follow the the King of Chemo. Uh, I'm on Instagram. I'm on um, TikTok, YouTube, especially for some reason. YouTube is still fucking dragging its heels, being like, "Come on, I've got." 4.9 million followers on TikTok and I've got 2.6 million followers on um Instagram and the rates they are growing is the amount of follow subscriptions that I have on YouTube which is like 15,000. At the moment Instagram is growing so fast that I get that uh, in 2 days which is crazy that like um you know I can clearly and logically without letting the ego get in the way say that this is youtube's algorithm it is not due to me not making good videos but whatever like i, I i'm not going to be uh upset about that because um it's a silly thing to be upset about i got fucking eight million followers it's my scheme is clearly working i don't think i'm going to get too pissed off about the fact that uh one of the uh, the Holy Trinity isn't quite on ball yet. It'll break. I'll fucking break YouTube soon enough. It's just a t it's just a uh, a tide that is rising behind a dam, and soon that dam shall crack. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, yes, just, uh, Google the King of Chemo, and then whichever is your social media platform that you particularly like yourself, uh, follow on that. Or if you have all three, go nuts. Yeah, same thing for uh, TikTok or not TikTok for uh, Twitter, or it's now what X. Um, same thing for Twitch. Uh, I haven't used Twitch in a long, long time, but I am going to get back into that. That's more of a live streaming focus, particularly on live streaming. That is the main thing for video games, but, uh, they, they Twitch is still viable for uh, people teaching fitness classes, which is something that I'm going to start, um, doing a lot more of. And, uh, then it's just down to like, um, what you want to do yourself as someone who wants to be a part of the Limo Chemo Timo. So some people want to donate. You can do that. You can. Um, uh, I try to make all the donation stuff uh, when it's when it's there. When I'm trying to focus on it, I try to put fun into it. So the All Ireland Charity Championship at the moment is um, the equivalent to if we're going off of America as the sort of the uh, the base model here. It's the same thing as we're putting all the states 
against each other where it's uh, uh I, I still haven't come up with like it's like local pride but local pride doesn't quite sound as, as significant as national pride but it's not national pride because there's 32 counties within the nation itself. They're not individual nations, just like states aren't individual nations, even though they practically are for the difference in the laws. Um, And the idea is that you can kind of be like, hey, Dublin are number one right now, but Kerry are very close behind. So then all the people from Kerry are like, fuck, fuck those Dubliners. We don't want them winning. <laughs> and then so it creates this healthy level of competition where um everyone's a winner but at the same time there is a winner because the whole thing is like you know the more money that gets thrown in it's like ah cork didn't come second cork came third fuck that's like ah that's a disappointment but the the fight itself the um how comp how competitive people got with each other meant that more money was raised for uh, a, a, a child abuse charity is what's being uh, the money is being raised for at the moment and that same uh, model is exactly what I'm going to do when I'm raising money for uh, the um, the charity that's associated with the Edinburgh to Paris um, uh, event. I'm going to do the exact same thing. I'm going to have a charity where it's like, if you donate here, it's like Ireland get more points. If you donate here, Wales get more points. England, Scotland, France. Uh, basically, I'm just going to try and include as many um, uh, Rugby World Cup teams that uh, I think feel are uh i don't want to say worthy but like uh, sort of worth my time so not to shit all over chile but i don't think there's going to be a lot of one chilean followers on my account and two chilean rugby fans that follow my account so i think i'll leave chile out i think i'll make sure to include australia new zealand south africa um and, you know, all the other sort of uh, 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 big teams that are going to be involved in the World Cup. Unfortunately, America and Canada aren't involved um, uh, for this this year. They were the last um, uh, four years ago and they did all right, but it is what it is. Well, they're world champions at other sports like baseball and American football. They're doing they're doing OK. Yeah. <laughs> well, no not one else not a lot of competition on the uh uh, the the latter one there. I heard it was, it was an American athlete the other day. Was pointing out that very irony. I think maybe it was, I forget which sport it was, but uh, it's, it's something that obviously when when you look at World Cup rugby, World Cup football, soccer football, you know you're like okay, it's the world. Everyone gets to play. But when you see like the World Series of baseball, it's like it's uh, mad. Is thing, it? Is it really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah it was it America, Cuba, uh, like Mexico, Japan. Does anyone else play baseball? No. I don't think so. Canada. Maybe. Yeah, they're, they're more into <laughs> hockey, though. <laughs> yeah, right. apparently, like, the Olympics is the only one that I can really think of. And I suppose the USA or the uh, the UFC. But the UFC isn't really, like, you know, a national sport. Like, if an American is playing a Brit, I don't think the Americans care too much about the person being an American. I think they just kind of care more about, like, the individual fighters. Well, unless it's Conor McGregor, and all of a sudden, uh, yeah, Conor every McGregor, American but, uh, identifies as Irish, which happens every March as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, I thought you were from Israel originally. No, I'm Irish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, like, for for sort of the uh, obscure, well, not obscure nations, but like for nations that wouldn't have like you know a, a huge population or a huge amount of people that are involved in that sort of thing, then of course the national pride starts like you know uh, poking its head out. Like, yeah, Habib Nur Nurmagomedov, like the Russians definitely were like supporting him. There's not that many. Um, 
um uh russians in the uh in the in the ufc so it's like when he's out there they smash they smash him like of course you're gonna get like you know russians going in there and uh, i think the same thing happens for like um uh new zealanders and uh nigerians where it's like you know you got a oh fucking i had his his name in my head a second ago and it just jumped off to israel my tongue. and the same. israel Asanya. Yeah, yeah 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 so it's like and i'm sure like maybe some israelis would jump on as well it's like yeah clearly his name i mean clearly he's israeli a bit as well but like yeah you want to jump on uh, i wouldn't say jump on the bandwagon but like it's it's like uh because he's a fucking incredible fighter and he's so witty he's so clever and he's just Ah oh, man, I fucking love Izzy. He's a great man to watch, and um, but yeah, it's like when you kind of have like a, a, a small population. New Zealand have like a population of four million people, so like when one of them sort of rises up like that, of course you're gonna throw the um, uh, the national pride and the patriotism on them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I wanted to just throw some closing questions at you before I let you go. That's okay. Yeah, of course. Brilliant. So the first one I love to ask, and you've mentioned some books already, but are there is there a book or are there any books that you love to recommend it can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated Old, uh, oh wait no yeah, this isn't vi- vi- uh, visual so I can't actually help out uh, yeah so I bought a book um, uh, from my auntie uh, recently enough and it's called uh, uh, The History of the World in Six Glasses and it has absolutely nothing to do with um, anything to do with motivational shit or anything like that. Uh, but it's just so fucking cool how it breaks down. It's like it starts off with beer and it goes on about how beer was one of the first things that was used as a, a form of currency. And um, there was certainly slaves involved in the building of the pyramids, but the pyramids were being built for fucking centuries. So they kind of changed things up quite often. So like often it would be like, you know, workers who were paid well that were educated. And then like another period, it would have been slavery exclusively and and so on. But beer was a form of um, a payment, which uh, it was so interesting. And then it goes on to uh, how coffee inspired the... Um, Oh God, the the Enlightenment uh, about and same thing for like certain kind of uh, stock exchanges and uh, loads of other things and why the Americans drink uh, coffee more so than tea where the Britain, which has changed around now. I think everybody tends to drink more um, uh, in in Europe and in uh, America. I think people drink more coffee than tea. Uh, I'm not sure if that's the same thing over in China, but um, I've never been. I'd go. I'd go to China. China. And uh, yeah, but it's basically just sort of the breakdown of all the different uh, uh, significant uh, forms of uh, drinkable things over the course of history and how they've had such a massive uh, effect. But, uh, like spirits being, I think the most interesting one was spirits, where one of the things it goes into is about how um, the uh, there's a strong uh, theory that rum made the difference of how uh, England became the dominant naval force over France. And it was because France, they're, they're a wine um, uh, uh, making country. And the spirit that they had on their naval crew was brandy. And brandy is for, is, is boiled wine. It's like further fermented, uh, fermented wine. And uh, it's more difficult to make 
far more difficult to make than rum. Rum is just uh, made from sugarcane. And so when the Brits were going around, and I think they colonized uh, in and around the, um, uh, some of the Caribbean islands, and I think the uh, northern part of South America, um, they got access to sugar, sugar beet, and then uh, they had a ready available amount of, uh, of rum. And so when they had that, they were able to ration rum off to the sailors uh, a lot easier. And so as a selling point to um, just random people in the streets of England where it's like, hey, do you want to join the Navy? And they'd be like, oh, why do I want to join the Navy? Why would I do that? It's like, there's this much rum every single day. I was like, all right, I'll join the Navy then. <laughs> That's very whereas, British. <laughs> whereas the, yeah, where the French, they couldn't do that because it was just difficult to get that much brandy. So they literally were like kind of uh, coercing more sailors to join uh the navy so they just had more sailors and then uh, it became a like a more of a patriotic thing because the sailors enjoyed being sailors far more and it kind of became this knock-on effect where uh you, you just had these really well experienced uh sailors and there was just more of them and then you got the british empire and then you got like you know what is it uh three quarters of the whole planet um uh, that were under the British flag. I mean, that's fucking hard to do in a game of risk alone, let alone like the actual world. Like, well, especially it's, uh, when you look at the size of the, as we went in the beginning, these two little rocks in the middle of the Atlantic. To think that they, I mean, it was obviously through some horrible ways, but the way they at gotcha. one point ruled two thirds or three quarters, whatever it was, of the planet. That's insane. Absolutely insane. Yeah, and like you said, it was because of Navy and ultimately rum. So, you know. I guess we need to watch this, the North Koreans and the Russians, make sure they don't start making rum or we're in trouble. Yeah, exactly. I think the Russians are doing okay with vodka. Um, but it goes through all sorts of the uh, the breakdowns of um, how these different things had such a, a huge effect on uh, on the world where it's like, it's so mad to just sort of think, really? Wine is, is, so, is that different to um, rum? Why is it that much of a of a difference? And then it breaks it down. It's like it's a fantastic book. It's one of my favorite books. I've just realized all the NHS needs to do is like, you want to be a nurse? Not really, not in the moment. We have rum. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Where do I sign? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, then yeah. what about a film and or documentary? Um, Documentary. Uh, the, the latest Arnold Schwarzenegger one is fantastic, but I think if you want to go back and watch the original Pumping Iron for anyone who hasn't done that, uh, I used to think before I saw that film, like I liked a few Arnie films, don't we all? But I think it was uh, much the same that I just sort of looked at Mr. Beast when he was on um, the Joe Rogan podcast and I kind of he heard him talk and heard his ethos and it was like, wow, I, I think completely different about this guy now. Um, that was the same for me with uh, with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Where I saw Pumping Iron, I was like, "Fucking hell, this guy is so intelligent!" Like what he portrays on screen, you think he's kind of like, you know, ha ha ha, I am stupid, and like I I lift weights and I shoot guns on television or on the the movie screens, and it's like you kind of think that he's a bit of an idiot, and then you realize, oh no, that is just what he is portraying he is a highly intelligent human being he's incredibly driven and uh when he's in the uh like bill burr has a great fucking sketch on him where it's like you know um 
<laughs> this guy's been in the fucking zone for four decades. I can't even learn, like, you know, uh, uh, Spanish in Rosetta Stone. This guy comes over to America and <laughs> doesn't even speak the fucking language. He ends up marrying into, like, the... Uh, the equivalent of the uh, the the American political royalty, where it's like the fucking Kennedys, and it's like <laughs> he was a millionaire before he even um, uh, went into uh, went into the movies. Like he's just such a fucking interesting character. He started um he started his own real estate company because he just kept reading the fucking paper every single day in the realty section, and that is a boring, laborious task that he just kept doing every fucking day. And then eventually he was able to look at something and be like, that's a cheap property. I'm going to buy that property. And then I'm going to like jazz it up and resell it. And he had his own construction company. So he was actually able to physically do that himself. And that just went on. And so, uh, but pumping iron, I think the big thing for me is it it highlights his, uh, his, I wouldn't say sportsmanship. He's a good sportsmanship person, but I think it's more, he's like Muhammad Ali in how he's so friendly, but at the same time, his like pre-match shit talking and his way of like fucking with someone mentally is just so much different to other people. It's like Muhammad Ali, like, you know, was it uh, once we were Kings? Is that the one about the, uh, the rumble in the jungle with uh, George Foreman? Uh I think so, yeah. When we were kings, something like that, yeah. When we were kings, yeah. It's it's something like that. King is within the word anyway. That'd be another fantastic documentary where you just sort of see how well he's able to like be super friendly, which almost makes him more annoying from an opponent's point of view where it's like, he's only making little jokes at me. Like, he's not really like... You know, coming up being like, I'm gonna fuck you up. Like, you know, that's what like so many boxers do these days. Muhammad Ali be like jumping in front of his opponents, being like, Oh, I'm so fast. Look at me now. Look at me. I'm gonna dance around you all night. I'm gonna like, you know, uh, all this sort of thing. Like, you know, uh, I wanted to go 20 rounds today. They wouldn't let me. I'm so fit, man. I'm so quick. It's like, it's like, how can you get annoyed with that guy? But he's still like, you know, winding you up. And Arnold Schwarzenegger is the exact same where he's just sort of like, you know, um, talking to uh, one of the other bodybuilders, like, you know, well, you know, I wish you good luck in the, uh, in the competition afterwards, you know, we can go, we can have a nice, uh, nice Italian, uh, nice Italian dinner at your, at your family's house. Maybe I could sit beside your sister and we could have like a nice family dinner together. It's like, you know, <laughs> It's very like, you know, PC, but like, you know, implied that like, ah, I'm going to be like, you know, getting an arm with your sister and all that sort of thing, but still just like friendly stuff. And like, so yeah, that'd be the documentary that, uh, that I would recommend. And what was the, um, the third thing that you were asking? Well, me? It was a documentary and or a film, like a regular film. Film. Um, uh, I think off the top of my head, I would, uh, I would go with any of the, uh, the Tarantino films because they're just so he's just a master at his uh at his craft uh, def uh defies so many sort of uh of the the tropes of film and like you know hey a story needs to go in uh, uh act one act two act three and you know how often does uh quentin come in and go no a story uh, like a good film doesn't actually need to be in any kind of a chronological order and it'll still be perfect and it's like Okay, yeah, let's see me. Let's see you do it there, Quentin. Show us what you got. And it's like, right, we're fucking. Here's uh, Pulp Fiction. Here's uh, uh, Kill Bill. Here's um, uh, Reservoir Dogs. None of them make any chronological sense. I mean, Kill Bill sort of ends chronologically correctly, 
but it's still just like let's have the end at the start and the middle at the back and it's like ah yeah if you haven't seen Quentin Tarantino films all of them um go see them all because some are better significantly better than others but they're all definitely worth a watch absolutely well speaking of good people is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders military and associated professions of the world Hmm, I'm trying to think of someone who you could get that is also uh, get a bull because uh, there's a kind of a tricky line uh, within that. Um, I mean, David Goggins is off the top of my head, like the the most uh, uh, obvious choice. But then it's the question of how would you get your hands on him? Because he's uh, a, a quite a... He's not active on social media himself personally. He just uploads the videos. Like he doesn't follow a single human being on social media on uh, Instagram. I was trying to text him, be like, "Hey, David, can you can you just make me the one person?" Because then I'm sure everybody would be like, "Hey, who's that one fucking person he follows?" You don't have to like like any of my shit or like comment on any of my shit, but just like the fact that there's like that one thing on your uh, your page and make a big difference. Um, I actually he's he. I was was in contact with him a while ago, um, and he is a wildland firefighter now. So they had actually said yes to the podcast, but then they put everything on hold. But I just, I think I'm about to be introduced to someone who's on his wildland crew. So we'll we'll see. But uh, that might actually happen. Another guy that I think that I saw you um, in a conference with recently is James Smith as well. He seems like he'd probably be a a fun guy. The the PT, I got that right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, James was uh, uh was he the guy who's recently done the um uh, uh holding the the the, like, the heavy kettlebells? I'm not sure he's the blonde guy that that you know swears oh, like a sailor. Oh yes, 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 and, yes, you know, yes. Basically, yeah. talks shit about all the bullshit on social. All media. All the bullshit that's going yeah. on with like you know um uh sort of uh fitness advice. Yeah, yeah. Now James, James, like he'd be, I'd say yeah, he'd be a very good guy because he's uh, uh very similar to yourself in the sort of the um. Uh, cuts through the bullshit, the stoicism, uh, stoicism. Like, um, ah, he's a, he's a great man. He's, he's fantastically talented at um the videos that he puts out. That he's able to maintain uh interest while simply talking. Like, he doesn't put in a huge. He puts in effort, but he doesn't put in a crazy amount of effort for um uh edits. Whereas I think a lot of times when someone has to do a talking point, they have to like throw in lots of stuff to sort of keep the um uh keep the the audience uh interested. I, I like as a simple example, I was doing a hike hike up the Wicklow Mountains, and the Wicklow Mountains are beautiful. Uh, and while I was doing that, I was kind of going completely off topic, as is my <laughs> as is my right. And uh, one of the things I was doing is like, oh yeah, here's um look at how beautiful uh, this part of uh, Wicklow is you can kind of see that Ireland used to actually be a gigantic rainforest and then it was due to the invasion that uh, of of like this is something as as well just to go back to the very start of the podcast where we were talking about how there's uh, so much negative um, uh, historical sort of uh, uh, a thought of the, the Brits and the relationship to Ireland and like there's that phrase that we have Ucht Cain Blean which uh, or sorry uh, yeah so Ucht Cain Blean means 800 years and it's to be like ah yes 800 years of oppression from the uh, the Brits but it's like I don't know where people got that number from because 
800 years ago, it wasn't really the Brits. It was like the Vikings and the Normans. And then they kind of mushed together and kind of became what the Brits are now. It's kind of weird that you'd be like holding it all against this this uh, one sort of group of people where that particular group of people changed into completely different people. But they still kind of were like, hey, you got fertile land. Give us some of that shit. Um, but anyway, the... Oh fuck! I've completely lost my train of thought again. You were talking I'm go about ahead and zoom on that. <laughs> you were talking about it used to be a rainforest, and you went off on the tangent. Ah yes. So I was going back to uh, how James is is so good at not using sort of things that are edited in and popped in. But I was talking about the rainforest and how that was uh, taken away, and it was. Or I I said with the thing, I was like, ah, like I don't want to say like, oh, it was the Brits invading or whatever, because like you know. I don't want to upset the Brits, but like, you know, ah, if you know your history, you kind of know who I'm talking about. And while I was saying that, I had a clip from Michael Collins, the film just kind of pan across the bottom of the thing <laughs> and then pan away. So it's like, you know, a little kind of fun way of sort of winking at what's uh, what I'm talking about without being too much of like, you know, fucking shoving history down someone's face. And then the same thing again, where I was later on in the film, I was talking about how oh, look at me, I'm on the top of a mountain, I'm taking loads of photographs because I'm a social media wanker and this is what social media wankers have to do whenever they're on a mountain. And then within that, I then started showing clips of them. There's this photograph that people uh, love to do, couples love to do, and I fucking hate it. It's so cringy looking where they have this thing of like, it's always the girl who does it, where it's like the girl is in the front of the of the, the shot and then you see the man's hand she's, reaching. And she's pulling him through. And she's pulling she him along. <laughs> yeah, pulling him along. She looks back and pulls him along. Like, oh, we're going on an adventure together. It's like, it's like the same thing where you see people who are like doing social media shit where it's like, hey, look, I'm helping this dog who's like a stray dog over here. It's like, oh, are you? Yeah, you're helping that dog up that little puppy that you found in the bin. You know what would make it easier? If you had two fucking hands rather than a camera in one hand and then you're trying to pick up this puppy from a bin with your other hand. Use two hands, you fucking prick. Like, well, some of them, you kind of can't help but wonder. I see some of the comments, like, you know, was that puppy outside the bin before you started picking up your phone? Did you put it in the bin and film yourself getting out of the bin? Because some of the ones, I, I try and think, okay, most people are probably do good thing, but some of these are so fucking staged. You're like, how did those four dogs get into that river? And then there's this dude with a digger downstream. And then you do kind of go, you know what? This might actually be bullshit. They may have put it there for the video because that seems. Like the the window that actually would happen organically, and the fact that someone happened to grab their phone to film it, yeah, it's it's probably all staged. And then especially, you know, you talk about the influencers. I just gave this guy a thousand dollars. He's homeless. I'm like, and you didn't have to film it, did you? But you fucking yeah. did. So it's you just it's a, devalued a, everything. Yeah, it's a it's a thing I'm very much against. Uh, and part of the reason why I'm constantly saying about how what I'm doing is not a uh, exclusively as like a charitable thing like i'm a mother Teresa kind of character but that i'm doing it for the challenge within myself it's to get rid of this um this this sort of fake kindness that is going on quite a lot and it's like i i, I understand the argument against it where it's like you know look they're still helping um they're still helping the person they're still raising money for charity they're still doing this good stuff even if it's not with the it's not actually coming from the best intentions. And for me, um, I see that argument and I can't 100% prove that it's incorrect, but it's just my opinion that I don't think that ultimately it's a good thing because I think too many fake fucks look at that 
and they see the same thing and it's like, ooh, maybe if I give to charity, uh, m- people will like my channel and like me as a person and think that I'm uh, a better human being than I am. And it's like, if that becomes a sort of a, a an ongoing cultural thing, I think we all end up being just fake shitty people that aren't actually trying to help each other when we need the help. And so to discourage that sort of fakeness and try to encourage actual help is, I think, yeah, I think it's far more important to try and um, uh, push that forward because it's it. It's a gray area. And I mean, even even South Park make a good like they don't specifically do it for social media, but they have that. They have a really good episode where uh, uh, I think it's Kyle who's uh, he's become like a messiah kind of character. And he's uh, sort of taking all the debts from everybody. And he's like, I I will live with nothing. I will have everybody's debts. And then it's like uh, Stan keeps kind of pushing back. No, 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 no. You're doing a lot of good, but you just you can't do it as a as a as a um, as a douche. You can't be doing it as a douche. You got to do the nice <laughs> thing, but you can't be you can't be doing it as a douche. You can't be thinking that like you know you're jumping on the sword for everybody and you want everybody to look at you like that. And it's 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 a it's a gray area, but like it's I don't know for me it's it's not gray. For me, it's fucking if you're gonna do something nice, do something nice. Don't put a fucking camera in front of it. And if you're gonna put a camera in front of it, you have to be doing that in a way to like don't do it with fucking homeless people ever because it's just patronizing well you're paying it's like, you're paying course. for them to be an extra in your shitty movie is basically what it is yeah but it's really it's condescending as well it's sort of like hey you're having a shit time aren't you well like you know your shit time i'm gonna publicize it and without really getting consent you're kind of forcing it upon them like uh, you know the sure the homeless person could like you know ha- like tell them here fuck off get your camera out of my face like i don't care if you're giving me a thousand quid but like you're homeless like they're at they're at fucking bottom level so like they're they will never you never say no to a significant amount of money that could be perceivably life-changing for your pride i don't like it's it's not a nice way to say it but like i don't think a huge amount of homeless people would have uh, a, a large amount of pride that they'd be able to be like Fuck off. I know what you're doing. Get that camera out. I'd almost love to do a parody of that where it's like, I'm going to pretend to be a homeless person (laughs) until someone comes up to me with a camera and tries to offer me money to be someone nice and kind of like have like a hidden camera thing. And just see, I'm waiting for the first person to fucking do it. I could do it easy. Like, look at this. Look at this big, long fucking hair. I could make a mess of myself, make myself look like a homeless person. Be like... Yeah, get the get that fucking money out of my fucking face. Pull out ten thousand. I'm like, I'm gonna give yeah. this back to you because you need to go to the devil and see if you can get your soul back. Okay, I'm gonna yeah. film it by the way. <laughs> yeah, and then I take out my phone and be like, "Hey, here's your fucking money back, you cunt." <laughs> yeah, I agree with you completely, though, and it is it's nauseating, but it just works against. There's such a need for kindness compassion community which goes back again to the beginning of our conversation english irish scottish welsh coming together as a net you know as nations you know held together and and rising up you know i love that phrase the the rising tide lifts all ships you know that we work together everyone benefits you know but uh oh yeah i've been using that a lot at the moment because i'm kind of trying to get uh loads of uh irish uh, irish people that are i don't like saying social media influencer it's a fucking horrible little title 
But um, yeah, people who are like sort of uh, video creatives, I'm trying to get like a load of Irish lads together because loads of people do that on social media. They get like little teams together and it's like, hey, it's like, kind of like a good, like a, an all-star cast in a film where it's like, oh, wow, like fucking um, um, Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio and Margot Robbie. Yeah, cool. I want to go see that film. Let's go see that film. Um, bonus points if you can name that film without um, um, looking it up. But it's that same sort of thing. And I'm trying to get that same thing going where it's like my pitch is always to them. Here, look, I, I like you might have bigger, uh, more followers than me. Um, I, I have more followers than this guy, but we all rise together. If the tide, if the tide goes up, all, all our ships go up together. Someone might rise significantly more than the rest of us. But like that doesn't detract from what we're doing. Absolutely. Well, one more question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you and, and I let you go. What do you do to decompress when you're not running and, and creating, you know, social media content? What does your kind of off-gassing look like? Oh, uh, definitely video games. Uh, video games, chess, um, that sort of stuff. Often, often editing, believe it or not. Sometimes I kind of just get into, like, it's usually when it's based around music. Uh, all my every without exception every single one of my videos that has gone um i wouldn't say viral but like that's gonna uh like got a real boost like um i think my biggest one is uh 40 million um views and that was all based around music and uh you could argue that it like the way music is done is is very mathematical and so when i'm getting it right when i'm getting the shots uh, matched up there's um it's a very satisfying thing uh, for me to kind of get the things lined up together and then I rewatch it and then it's like, oh, it, it snaps into the beat perfectly. It's like, oh, that's it. And yeah, that would be, um, it'd be mostly video games, but uh, that one would be another big factor. Beautiful. And just for everyone listening, so the king of chemo is the, the handle for pretty much everything? Yep. Beautiful. Well, Ian, I want to say thank you so much. It's been an amazing conversation. We've been chatting for over two and a half hours now. Um, got to meet your mum, which is also great, and hear some seagulls. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, it, it's been it's incredible. And to take something that some people might curl up into a ball about and turn it into a positive. I mean, you could obviously, I, I didn't talk about this, but you could look at the the drug trials and go, oh, were they, you know, were they one of the reasons that it happened? But the drug trial, you know, journey was actually what, allows you to discover what happens so i'm really excited to you know put this out to everyone and hopefully add some more people to your community but also there's so much to take away from it as far as whatever that challenge is in life turning you know lemons into lemonade and actually doing something good and, and finding as we discussed before that purpose because whether it's overcoming or, or, or forging forward through some sort of disease um uh, diagnosis or whether it's the mental health side I think that purpose is what a lot of people are missing and that is always the ingredient to positive mental health as well so I want to thank you so so much for being so generous with your time and coming on the show today oh thanks for having me on yeah even if it doesn't affect uh, I, I find usually doing podcasts doesn't actually affect much on uh, in terms of the uh, follower thing just because sort of there are different forms of media same thing when you go into like a uh, good morning shows I've done a few of them. Doesn't affect really social media that much, but for me, yeah, as uh, if one person listens to your podcast and like gets out of bed, you know, ten minutes faster than they would have, that's that's enough for me because I that's that's tangible. Mm -hmm.